Welcome to the podcast is dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. The Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee with our head coach, Chad Zimmerman. Hi, everybody. And our CEO, Nate Pearson, will be joining us soon. Uh, he's currently just, uh, he's on the way. So we'll get him in here soon. This is where we answer all the triathlon and, and cycling related questions that you submit at trainerroad.com slash podcast. Thank you for doing that. We got a ton of questions this week and keep it going. Uh, I read through all of them and then put them together in this list every week. So uh, quick note, we are on a Wednesday, but usually every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific is when we record this podcast and you can join us live on YouTube. And I know there are a lot of people that are going to be joining us now live on YouTube. So when you join us, please give a thumbs up for the video because that'll help a whole lot of other people see this video. The more thumbs up we have, the more circulation that sort of thing gets. So it's a big help for us for sure. So if you're watching now, Thumbs up, even if you're watching after the fact. Uh, Chad, we have a number of different things to cover here. Mm -hmm. uh, first one uh, that we should cover some job postings. So we still have job postings up. You can go to trainerroad.com slash jobs and for product marketing manager for uh, React and React Native Engineers, uh, which we're constantly hiring on those, uh, C-Sharp Engineer. And also if you're local to the Reno Tahoe greater area, we're also uh, adding more to our customer support team. So you can apply for all of those positions online. Once again, at trainerroad.com slash jobs. And we also have some releases that we should cover here. So on the race analysis side of things, uh, producer Tucker has some, some, some race analysis hot in the oven right now. Uh, so it's, it's going to be released here soon. Uh, and both of these are from Nate. Uh, so some of the races that we recorded, geez, uh, earlier this year in the summer, but we didn't get those ones out. Uh, and now they're going to be coming out. And then we're also going to be working on something that'll be kind of interesting, uh, which we're basically going to show the finishes that made Nate go from cat five to cat two in a year. And then we'll put them all together and we'll actually have like a whole playlist and everything else. So stay tuned. Nice. You can go to youtube.com slash trainer road and check that out. Um, basically with all of the videos that you'll see in the cat five to cat two thing, it's you'll learn everything that Nate learned throughout that period. So it's kind of like a cool, like fast tracking yeah, option. That's cool. Time-lapse almost. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Concentrated learning. The other thing is if you go to blog.trainerroad.com, we just released a blog post on one of our more popular videos that we did, which was sprinting 101, how to be explosive, where we looked at Pete's form. And then we looked at Nate's form and we analyzed the differences between the two. And we kind of came up with some key things on like what to do when you sprint in order to try to really get more out of it. Because the main thing was Nate's a big guy, mm -hmm. right? But his sprint numbers weren't where we would expect them to be. Yeah. And his sprint also, he said he felt like he lacked coordination in the sprint yeah. and that he couldn't get as much as he wanted out of it. So yeah. there's a lot goes into a sprint, a lot more than people Ooh. recognize. Yeah. It's, We're going to talk about that today too. Yeah. Super complex. Like, and even the process of going down and just narrowing down what we felt were like principles that everybody could apply and then see some improvement. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to go through the motion. It's one of those things that some people just do and they don't think about it yeah. and they're able to make that happen, but it's not that easy for everybody. And it's, and everybody needs to hear it slightly differently. It seems to yeah. understand It's like any lessons, ski lessons or yeah, something yeah. of that nature. And you throw too much information at a person at one time and it's, it's kind of falls on deaf ears after a point. And then it's just a matter of confusion and nothing really takes yep. hold. Yeah. So we, we put together kind of this list of things we really talk about, like, and, and you can go to the, go to the blog post and check it out first. I would recommend that. But uh, we basically talk about the position that you need to be in and some key little points on position that we didn't think about until we saw this. And then, uh, so some key points on body positioning, then after the body positioning, how you have to maintain tension evenly throughout the whole body thereafter. Mm -hmm. And if you're in the proper position with tension throughout and that's maintained, then you're ready to apply force to the pedals. And then we talk about the coordination aspect of it. And then 
everything else just kind of falls into place. But one of the interesting points that we found with Nate, if you check out the video that you can see within that blog post and everything else on our YouTube channel is that Nate had kind of a lack of tension in his core. Mm -hmm. And when he had a lack of tension through his trunk, then what happened is that his hips started to wobble quite a yeah, lot. It wasn't really a closed loop. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, exactly. It's kind of like if you were to have a pole and you were trying to like, you know, lift something up on the end of that pole, but mm -hmm. then halfway through that pole, you made it a hose for just a short <laughs> section. <laughs> It'd be impossible to make that happen. Right. It's so sure, like sure. when you introduce a void, then things start to just not function as they're intended to. Yeah, breaks down. So we, we were able to isolate that and check it out. It's really interesting. So, and, and I would recommend having somebody film you doing a sprint and then you can see it. Cause man, it's a lot of information to be gleaned. Yes, a ton. You'd be surprised. Same, same with like uh, explosive lifts, like mm -hmm. Olympic lifts. You may, you may think you're doing it right. You may, someone may describe something. You may feel like you nailed exactly what they just described. And then you see it on video and you look <laughs> how awful yeah, that, the fact that you didn't get any aspect of what they described. Quite yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. So super interesting. And Megan, uh, one of our awesome copywriters here, she's the one that wrote the blog post that kind of summarized what we talked about in that video. So go check that out. Give it a read. Uh, it's something that we should be working on, especially now is the time to be working on the sort of things of getting at least understanding and learning what you need to do in terms of technique for the season ahead. So this is when you lay the groundwork. Then one last bit of information before we get into uh, one one of the questions here is uh, this is if you go to forum.trainerroad.com, it's a lively community, a bunch of uh, like-minded cyclists. <laughs> And sometimes they do crazy things uh, and we should probably like, like preempt this joking around. No one should do this. Like we don't, we don't advocate this as like a solid training strategy in any way, but there's a workout called disaster. Fun event though. Yeah. Potentially uh, fun. For, yeah. yeah. Particular yeah. type of fun. <laughs> yeah. There's a group workout called disaster and a bunch of crazy people on the forum have come together and decided that they want to all do it on Saturday and they call it worldwide disaster day. So, mm -hmm. and every year it leaves me both baffled and amazed, <laughs> yeah, exactly. baffled that anybody would want to do this workout <laughs> yeah. and amazed that anybody can do this workout. Yep. Yeah. So this is something that I guess, Chad, we can kind of look at this like you look at, and, and right now, if you're joining us live, producer Tucker was just showing the workout so you can see it there. Um, <clears throat> this is a good example of when you have a huge day coming up, if you're in the middle of a training plan, you have to plan for this sort of stress. Oh, yeah. Like whether it's lopping off the workout that you had planned beforehand or yeah. afterward, right? This like, is, it's a kitchen sink workout, but it's basically, and probably harder than a race. Yeah. Super tough. Seriously. And it's, I, I know they did a half version of it, which is actually sensible. Yeah. yeah. The four hour or four hour 15 version of it. It's crazy. Not sensible. Yeah, exactly. That's, so it's ludicrous. This does not have the coach Chad stamp of approval as a good thing to do to make you faster <laughs> in your training plan, but you know, it's, whatever. There are benefits to it. Sure. But, uh, a lot of ways to go about those same benefits that aren't quite as miserable. <laughs> yeah. So if you're interested in such things, you can head over to forum.trainerroad.com and you'll be able to see it and join some others in some suffering. <clears throat> Cyclocross Nationals is going on right now, which is pretty exciting up in the Pacific Northwest here in the United States. And we have a question that applies directly to this from Corey. Mm -hmm. uh, well, uh, perhaps indirectly, but we'll definitely tie it toward this. So he says... Um, your podcast checks all the boxes. It entertains during long training rides and educates me to hopefully have the best season ever. I race mountain bikes as a master's cat two racer, and most races start fast and furious, leaving me behind. Depends on how long the race is, but somewhere about halfway through, I start catching up and passing guys. I sometimes feel like if the race was a little longer, I place higher or maybe even get a win. That's like the plight of many a cyclist that join cyclocross races, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. right? Man. Especially because they are so short. So it's tough to be able yeah, to you don't get a good start. Oof. Yeah, it's hard. Uh, so it says, my question is what type of training would help me keep up with the fast guys and hopefully leave enough in the tank to finish strong. 
Any race strategy advice would be appreciated too. Most races are about one and a half to two and a quarter hours long. That's a really long cyclocross race. I've never heard of one that long, but you know, mm-hmm. who knows? Yeah. Uh, he says, I'm five, nine at 139 pounds. So a uh, pretty lightweight. Maybe that's a mountain bike race. Um, yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully that's the it's case. Be. Uh, last step test have me at 257 FTP and would love to get stronger and finally make the top step. Thanks. You guys rock. Um, so I guess, uh, he's asking for training advice and then also like the, the, the strategy advice, I guess you could say in terms of the starting side of things, Yeah. where would you want to start out with this one? Well, Shannon? like I was saying, Corey, there's, there's so many aspects of sprinting and people don't give it its due credit. And, and depending on the type mm-hmm. of racing you do, I mean, if you're a long course triathlete, sprinting doesn't figure into your, your game plan at all. There is, right. there is, there are benefits to be gained from doing sprint training mm-hmm. in your training, but you're never going to apply that sort of thing on the race course. Yeah. Um, whereas with mass start racers or mountain bike racers or cyclocross racers, and those all qualify as mass start too. Um, it's hugely important. It is fundamental. And yeah. it's typically these sort of maneuvers and efforts that are make or break scenarios. Yeah. This is how you win races. This is how you establish gaps that are meaningful and lead you to a win or a smaller group at least. Yeah. There's two real main reasons to this that I mean, like, let's say you're a long course triathlete. And I know a lot of people have just have always questioned this tactic from the outside in because they're kind of like, well, Honestly, though, if you're to pace it evenly, it's probably faster, Mm -hmm. but there's two reasons why that kind of breaks with cyclocross races, especially amateur cyclocross racing. So amateur cyclocross racing is usually shorter than an hour, right? So when you're talking less than an hour long, people can do, can far outreach what their threshold is for that period of time. Certainly. And, and they can get away with a lot because the race is shorter. Uh, secondly, it's because of the technicality and shape and size of the course bottlenecks hit. And then, so you end up basically bottlenecks. Exactly. Right. So, and, and it's funny because sometimes you don't even realize they're slowing you down. If you had this in cross where like, you still feel like you're going at a decent clip, but <laughs> you're not at the front. And then you realize once you, once everything thins out, you realize how far the front away is. I, yeah. And then you also realize how much faster I'm going through all of this stuff uh-huh. when I don't have people around me. Oh yeah. This is, it's kind you of know. a side note. It's, it's more of a strategy type type thing, but it kind of builds on that is that, uh, I was watching Cyclocross Essen this weekend. Mariana Voss makes made her, Mariana Voss made her return. Mm-hmm. She got the whole shot. She got she got to lead into the first turn. Coming out of the first turn, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but it was an effective strategy. She laid off the gas for maybe a half extra second before she started her acceleration out of the turn. And as we all know, she accelerates incredibly yes. well. Yeah. So she opened a gap anyway, but that the trickle down effect, the accordion effect it had, that half second gap, how far it carried back on the first turn made a difference that probably meant the people in the 20th and back weren't going to figure into that race. They just had no just, chance. Just from that one little thing, that one little, that one little lag. Yeah. And that, that happens unintentionally. I mean, it's, it's, it, that's super, uh, that's a good point. When you watch pro racers, they do a lot of things like that. That seems subtle. They're intentional. Yep. Because it was the first turn and, uh-huh. and she was the focus, you could kind of see it happening. And again, it may have been unintentional. It may have been very much intentional. She's a yeah. very strategic and, and cagey rider. Yep. And then think about all of us average Joes and, and, and Janes. When we get out there and we race, yeah. we make a mistake all the time. You know, like we, we go up to the run up and if there's an early run up in a course oh, and we get off and we just f- you know, fumble our way through it mm-hmm. as a result, that ends up causing that accordion effect that just, it, it basically Everybody eliminates pays it. for it. Yeah. So and the farther back you are, the, the, the higher your, your cost. Oh yeah. Super. Yeah. Yeah. Super interesting yeah. point. That's a good observation. 
So yeah, where do we yeah, want to so start with this? Neither one? here nor there. Just just fun. Sure. Yeah. Um, so first off, let's recognize the difference uh, between being a, a protected sprinter and an unprotected sprinter. So so unprotected, we're talking about most of the racing. Most of us do. You have you have the start sprint, you have mid race sprints, and you have end of race sprints. Er, everything everything's in there. Whereas if you're a protected sprinter, mm-hmm. basically you just have to hang on and, and do as little work as possible and let your team shelter you, let your team take care of you. Mm -hmm. Um, ideally sometimes that works out. Sometimes it doesn't, doesn't matter how strong or big a team you have behind you doesn't Mm -hmm. always work, but a lot of the time it does, especially with uh, higher echelon teams. So we're not really talking about the finish sprints so much as the ones that happen throughout a race and especially starting a race, Mm -hmm. but the training for them isn't a heck of a lot different anyway. Right. You just, you just manage your resources differently over the course of a race. Sure. So really, uh, one way to differentiate here is to see these as capacity versus power. Right. So in the case of someone who has to repeat sprints, it's very much about capacity. You need to be able to work at a high percentage of your sprint power again and again and again and again over the course of a race. Like cyclocross? Yep. And mm-hmm. mountain bike racing and, and, and mm-hmm. the like. And then with a the power, when you're strictly focused on power, you simply want my highest 12 to 15 second power. Mm-hmm. That probably assumes that you're you're either a protected rider or you're the type of rider who's going to sit in as much of the race as possible, do as little work as possible, try to ride as smartly as possible, conserve as much as possible, such that when the the final 500 to 200 meters rolls around, you've got as much snap mm-hmm. as you as you can manage left. Right. Yeah. So this is like the the Cavendish, so to speak, would be like a good example of that, where he has a lead out train, lead out train, all dedicated. Or he's really good at finding and finding wheels and expending as little energy in the process. Right. Cool. Yeah. Makes sense. So another way to put that is is you know how how quickly do you replenish your sprinting stores? And I'll Mm -hmm. dissect what those are in a minute. um, Versus preserving full energy stores. So you either have to be able to recharge it really quickly, or you have to leave it untouched, untapped. So that mm-hmm. when you finally do utilize it, it's all there. Right. Um, so again, you won't, you won't train much differently in either case. You want to develop as much sprint power as possible. And then how you dole out those, those, that, that sprint or those sprints is, is largely based on tactics. Um, you become, uh, if you're, if you're not protected, you become more of a responsive rider. You just have to do things based on what other riders do. You For can't sure. just let your team handle things. Yeah. You have to do the handling. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that the, the protected sprinter position isn't really a widely applicable one because there aren't too many people. I mean, even on a team of however many riders, yeah. you typically have one. Oh yeah. That's it. So not a lot of us find ourselves in this particular position. And yeah. unless you're on a very well-organized team, you're not going to find yourself in that position anyway. You can be the designated sprinter, but unless you have a lot of really capable riders who are experienced and know how to protect you, yes, you're still going to come to the line a bit depleted, maybe a lot depleted. Probably one of the best strategies to, to make sure that you leave races unfulfilled and frustrated is to assume the role of a protected sprinter. (laughs) Like, like it's just, and and it's funny because especially when you're new to racing, you kind of just assume that role, Yeah, you know, a lot of the time, because that's what we see. And because I mean, sprint finishes predominantly that they're the ones, those in mountaintop finishes, that's, that's all that we remember from grand tours. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if you don't watch the spring classics, then you don't see a lot of races where riders are truly having, truly having to vie on, you know, on their own and, and really make their own moves sure. do that sort of thing. Yep. So we see a lot of that and man, it, I mean, everything has to align and you have to have the perfect team around you. It's really tough. Everything has to go right. Yep. Yeah. So or you have to manage any, any unexpected uh, derailments yeah. and you have to manage them really well and really quickly. Yeah, exactly. So it's really tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, as far as sprints go in, 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 in all cases, whether you're protected or unprotected, and we're going to move forward, assuming you're an unprotected rider and you're mm-hmm. just sprinting within a race uh, at the beginning of the race, at the end of the race, um, it's, it's a matter of three things. It's a matter of more things than that, but I'm going to focus on the physiology, 
and then we'll get to the skill and the strategy. Um, I'm really going to dive on the physiology cool. um, as close as we'll get to a deep dive this week. Um, and then we can talk skill and strategy afterwards. Sweet. So with, with the physiology, it comes down to or one aspect of it is energy delivery. So mm -hmm. what fuels these particular efforts? And we talk a ton about aerobic fitness and, and the size of our aerobic engine and VO2 max. So that's all on the aerobic or the oxidative side. And then we also touch a lot on anaerobic power mm -hmm. or glycolytic power, especially with mass start racing, but even with um, steady state racing, that, that's a very important component. What we don't talk about, unless we're talking about mass start racing or sprint training, is the third energy system, which is highly important. It's always activated. It's always part of this process and it's the ATP PCR. Uh, energy system and, and, and ATP, we know that's basically the fuel for our muscles. And mm -hmm. in this case, this is the ATP that's actually in the muscle fiber. It's on board. We don't have to convert it. We don't have to go through any steps of glycolysis or oxidative phosphorylation. None of that. It's right there, ready to go. Mm -hmm. It lasts only a couple seconds. When it right. depletes, phosphocreatine donates one of its phosphates or its phosphate and recreates that ATP. And we can cycle through it and keep on putting out high amounts of energy for a very short duration. So we're talking yep. like 10 to 15 seconds. Right. So that, that's your sprint power. And what people I think fail to recognize is that if you don't develop it, first off, it's not there, not to the extent that it can be. And secondly, that it replenishes really quickly. Hmm. You don't just have one of those. Right. And, and then your race is over. I used Give my time, sprint. Is it like comes back, say. it comes back, it comes back, it comes back. And I'll talk about how it comes back and how you can make it come back. Cool. Nice. So with this ATP PCR system, it's, this is an anaerobic system. No oxygen is required. Mm -hmm. Theoretically, you could hold your breath and probably still sprint at the same power. Uh, you, you couldn't because there is still some aerobic and anaerobic contribution sure. or aerobic contribution. But to fuel this energy system alone, no oxygen is required. Like I said, it's locally stored. It's in the muscle. Depletes really rapidly. We're talking on, uh, in the time course of uh, time range of six to fifteen seconds, mm -hmm. and it activates very very quickly. Thousands of a second, and it's rolling. It's pretty as sweet. opposed to anaerobic and aerobic, which take much longer. Yeah, this, much longer in the case of aerobic. This is like jet fuel on exactly. board. It totally is. Yep. It's ready to explode. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, you you can, about as close as you can get to complete exhaustion, completely deplete these stores. Mm -hmm. I've seen studies, they typically talk about running them down to 15 to 16%. Um, others, all the way down to 4%. Wow. The body's really picky about what it will let you deplete. And in most cases, it doesn't let you deplete it. When we talk about glycogen depletion, for instance, it, it maybe gets down to like 30% depletion. Right before we start to hit the wall. Yeah. And you can train that. You can train it down to 25, 20%. I'm sure some athletes have gone lower, but it's a miserable process and you got to question the productivity of that type of training. Yeah. Is it the best way to go about making yourself a better athlete? Yep. Yeah. Um, so really sprints are all about burning off these PC, PCR stores or emptying the tank. Mm -hmm. But the beauty of it is, is that tank replenishes and almost indefinitely, mm -hmm. it just keeps coming back, keeps coming back, keeps coming back. And there are uh, factors that lead to fatigue that will eventually, you know, soften your sprint and then eventually take it away, but ride sensibly. And you can repeat this meaningfully a number of times. Right. Yeah. So with, the, with this idea of, of your PCR stores, these phosphocreatine stores, um, sometimes called CP or creatine phosphate, but let's just call them PCR. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it's kind of a matter of two things. You either want to increase the size of your PCR pool mm -hmm. and you can do that. And there's evidence to support it, but there aren't big changes. I'm not sure that should really be anyone's end game, unless they're, um, under the tutelage of a, of a really good knowledgeable coach and they're training for something very particularly related to sprints. Got it. In most cases you want to improve your ability to replenish that PCR pool right. and replenish it to its fullest extent in a lot of cases while still doing some work mm -hmm. and, and, and replenish it as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to replenishing these stores, 
it, it, uh, there was a study in 1976 by Harris. So way back, and he noticed that this is a biphasic process. Mm -hmm. So the, the, there's a fast component and a slow component. And the fast component replenishes about 50% of your stores in as quickly as about 20 seconds. Wow. This assumes full rest. So you're going to have to actually lay off the gas and coast, or, you know, if you're in a workout, actually rest. Right. And then the remaining 50% or so takes about three, four or five minutes. Again, assuming full rest, probably closer to three. Mm -hmm. The the fast component isn't pH related. It doesn't matter what your blood acidity is, how okay. hard you've gassed. It, that 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 fifty percent is going to come back rapidly with rest anyway. Right. But the other fifty percent does matter. So if your blood is still really acidic, meaning you know, you're doing a whole lot of anaerobic work, your aerobic engine is not quite up to snuff, or it's not quite doing its job. It hasn't. Uh, brought you back down to a low acidity state, mm -hmm. that's not going to replenish. So this says we need to be really well aerobically conditioned if we want to continue to repeat high percentages of our sprint power for, for, for longer durations. So this is the science behind why it's so important what goes on in between the hard efforts. Absolutely. Absolutely. This, this is why, like, uh, this is why, even though, because a lot of people, you think like anaerobic efforts. So like all that matters, once again, our brain thinks in systems of light switches a lot of the time instead mm -hmm. of faders. Mm -hmm. But we think that because I can't do anaerobic efforts repeated or as hard as I want, something like that, it must just be an anaerobic limiter. But in this case, the aerobic system is key and the yeah. efficient aerobic system is key to being able to allow your body to replenish, to, to replenish quickly so that you can go, go again and not just go again, but go really hard and go you know, reasonably longly, yep. long, yeah. uh, you know, up to maybe close to that 15 seconds again, assuming full replenishment. Yep. Um, and, and yeah, that replenishment, it's, it's like, uh, after the first three minutes or so, you've got like 95% replenishment again, mm -hmm. full rest. Um, after about five minutes, you're up to like 99 and then it takes to get to the full hundred percent. You need like 10 minutes of rest. It takes quite a long time to get that last little bit, mm -hmm. but we don't need that last little bit in race scenarios. We just need to be able to hit it reasonably hard again and again and again. Yep. So if we can get a couple of minutes of coasting or sitting in, we can probably, or, or riding a downhill on a mountain bike race or mm -hmm. even on a cross course. And before you can do it again. Um, and, and just to further the point that aerobic conditioning is super important to how quickly your PCR stores replenish. There was a study that compared sprint athletes to untrained athletes to endurance athletes. And even against the sprint athletes, endurance trained athletes replenish these PCR stores twice as quickly. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Right. So yeah. aerobic conditioning is a huge part of how quickly you can go again. Huh, super so hard cool. again. Yeah. Um, so, oh, and, and interestingly, it's not really tied to VO2 max. So someone with a, with a, you know, 55 VO2 max against someone with an 85 VO2 max can replenish PCR stores r relatively as quickly or pretty much as quickly, assuming they have good blood distribution and oxygen uptake. So lots of mitochondria, lots of capillaries, lots of oxidative enzymes and high enzymatic activity. Yeah. And those things come regardless. You can improve those things regardless of changes in VO2 max. Huh. Super cool. Huh. Okay. Fascinating. So, so that's, that's kind of the, the physiology on the energy delivery. Um, as far as other components of the sprint, there's, we, we talk a lot about neuromuscular strength. So really the communication between your brain and your muscles and how much muscle mass you can innervate, how quickly you can activate it, that sort of thing. So that mm -hmm. is a crucial aspect to sprinting, yeah. but I think it's what too many athletes defer to rather than consider the fact that maybe they're just not fit enough. Yeah. Maybe they're spending so much of their PCR and anaerobic stores that by the time they get to a, to their sprint, they can't sprint because they didn't have good enough fitness to carry them to the meaningful moments in, in a, in a more rested state. Right. Basically they're just not fit enough to hang. Yeah. And then they say, well, I need to work on my sprint. My sprint's not strong enough. Well, actually you probably just need to bring up your general conditioning so that when you do apply your sprint, it still has a bit of kick to it. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, makes sense, right? So if it is the case, however, that neuromuscular strength is what's limiting you, you know you're very fit, but you just still don't have that snap. You still can't sprint very well. This is when you have to start to engage in some neuromuscular training where you're really training the muscle actions and not just the conditioning. Got it. So it's, it's really the muscular system plus the nervous system, not just the peripheral adaptation in the muscles. Right. Yeah. And this is where we talk about when you hit the gym and you do heavy weights mm -hmm. and you see strength increases without increases in the cross-sectional area of your fibers. You don't right. get bulkier, you just get stronger because more of the act, more of the muscle fiber that's already there is now on board. The it's brain is communicating used. with it, yes. Yep, yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, along the lines of neuromuscular improvements, um, it comes down to a few different components. I look at explosiveness. Mm -hmm the ability to sustain your sprint and repeat your sprint. And that has a lot yep. to do with basically those PCR stores we just talked about yep. and then movement economy. Yeah. So kind of, kind of covered the ability to sustain and repeat pretty well with PCR. Yeah. So let's just talk about explosiveness. Um, that's, it's a matter of first off max strength. You have to have a lot of available muscle fiber to contribute to mm -hmm. the muscle action. You have to be able to really drive those pedals and that's a total recruitment issue. Yep. You address that with, um, in the gym strength, you know, heavy weights, mm -hmm. mind you. So three to five reps, as much as you can barely move three to five times, repeat three, four or five sets. Yep. Strength sprints, which is where you put it in a big gear and then try to you know, wind up maybe 30 RPM to 90 RPM in a 10, 12 second span. Sure. And stomps and stomps are, Pretty much the same thing. The initial uh, part of that sprint. Basically the same thing. Yeah. Yep. So they're really mm -hmm. close to the same thing. Yep. And for, for example, trainer road workouts, take a look at Clark. Um, those incorporate bursts, a little short 12 seconds within, I think like a sweet spot workout or maybe a, a threshold workout. Yep. You can see it now if you're watching um, on the Tucker's on bringing YouTube. that up. Yep. You can see it there. And then the priest, um, those are a little more in line with what we're going to get to, which is the hard starts where you gas it for 30 seconds and then you settle in. Yep. But those are prescribed as power starts. I yep. want, I want big gear starts on those. And, and the, and the workout text and the workout description says, put this in your, dump this into your biggest gear, wind it up, then sit down at an 80, 90 RPM. Once you've gotten it there yep. and shift into the gear you like. Yeah. But this does apply those to a workout format, those hearts or uh, power starts. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or big gear starts. I think is what I call them in the workout. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so that's total recruitment. That's how much muscle mass you can actually get to fire. And then it's the rate of recruitment. So you need to be able to bring these muscle fibers online as quickly as possible. And this is the, this is the, the other half of recruitment. I mean, you can have crazy strength. You can be able to deadlift or squat tons of weight. You can, you can be able to churn out 400 watts at 40 RPM. But if you can't get it going really quickly, you're never gonna be much of a sprinter. Well, yep. you're gonna be a very particular type of a sprinter, <laughs> you know, kind of a Cipollini sort of. Yeah. But even he had some level of explosiveness. Sure. And in order to improve this this recruitment, this rate, of, or I'm sorry, this rate of recruitment, um, we do things like bursts, uh, micro bursts, and even explosive weights. Mm -hmm. So if you're in the weight room, you got to move weight quickly. So you're going to be working at a, a reasonably low percentage of your one rep max, so like yep. 50, 60 percent, sometimes lower, depending on how quickly you need to move it and how specific you want to make this. Um, those bursts, they don't have to be long. We're talking like five, six. Five or six seconds, you know, maybe maybe eight seconds on the high side of things, and then microbursts. We're all familiar with you know workouts like Spanish Needle, where it's 15 seconds at 150, and you dip down to full recovery. Well, it's 15 seconds recovery, so it's not yeah. full recovery, but it's a very low uh, recovery trough. Yeah, and repeat it over and over again, and that causes you to bring a ton of muscle mass online quickly, turn it off, bring it back on, turn it back off, and you do this many many times a workout. Yeah. So if you want to work on rate of recruitment, there aren't too many better ways than microburst workouts. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And then when we get to skill limitations, this is why uh, in, in 
with respect to sprinting, especially this is why a lot of these drills figure their way into workouts. Yep. I mean, I put drills in there just to make the workouts a little more interesting, but I also put them in there because I know people, whether or not they recognize they need a sprint or they don't even consider themselves, consider themselves sprinters, they can benefit from all of this stuff. Oh yeah. It doesn't matter whether or not they need to be able to sprint. These are all very usable, useful skills. Yep, for sure. Um, so uh, the first, first, uh, it, it comes down to, let's see. So s when I talk about skill limitations, I'm talking primarily about leg speed and and control. Right. So to develop leg speed, have a ton of ways. Like uh, you'll see the cadence ladders, mm -hmm. which is basically incremental speed, so, so that you can kind of work it up and get a sense of where you start to lose control. Yep. So you know I can go from 120 to 130, but when I try to make a jump to 135, that's when things start to fall apart. Yep. So you either recognize I need to be able to go 135, and you work on that, or you recognize I'm probably never going to need to spin quicker than 130. Sure. So uh, I'm actually good, and I'm just going to maybe start at 110 instead of starting so high, whatever. Yep, exactly. Um, Spin-ups are where we trade power for speed. So as the power goes down, the leg speed comes up. Mm -hmm. So so the workout stays roughly as difficult in terms of perceived exertion, but it allows you to focus less on power, more on turning your legs quickly. Mm -hmm. And then just regular speed endurance intervals. And and I use these to, to kind of counter that antagonistic interference. So mm -hmm. pushing down on the quads means your hamstrings have to shut off. Mm -hmm. Pulling up with your hamstrings, if you do that, means your quads have to shut off. Yep. Training speed endurance, trying to trying to hold a high, you know, maybe 110, 120 RPM for a couple minutes at a time. Doesn't yep. sound like much till they try to do it. And it's if you're hard. unfamiliar with it, it's really it's taxing. Hard. But yeah. then you learn to ride a little more in a little more relaxed manner. You shut off those muscles that would counter the driving muscles and you yep. get really good at that. It's not a conscious thing either. It just takes place through practice and through longer and longer speed endurance intervals. This is why we always recommend that people get familiar with like a wide range of cadence. It's Absolutely. not just stuck into a narrow band. Yeah, 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 I mean, you need those at your disposal, especially if you're a master racer. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and then form sprints, which is sprinting, but it's all about speed, not about power. You mm -hmm. put, I mean, you keep the watts as low as 60%, 70% of threshold and you just spin as fast as you can, practicing on drumming up speed quickly, controlling speed, shifting through your gears, et cetera. Yes, keeping a stable pelvis on the saddle while yep. that's happening. Yep. All those things. Yep. And then um, I, I came across a sprint article written by Matt Chatlong, who's a top-notch sprinter mm -hmm. in, in the U.S. here on, on, the, on the Western seaboard. Yep. And uh, he pins it at uh, the, the RPM apex at 120 to 130. And yeah. he's a man who knows his sprints. He's a very he's adept good. and capable and, and accomplished sprinter. You can see and him on NorCal Cycling's videos. Yeah, um, yep. uh, yeah Matt Chat, as he's often called. And he's darn good at what he does. Yep. And he sees it as, as a 120 to 130 RPM range. It's mm -hmm. like you don't really need to practice. I mean, there's no there's no harm in and, and some benefit to practicing above 130 RPM mm -hmm. to, to, to hone all the skills we were just talking about and the coordination and all. But you're probably not going to apply that in a sprint. Yeah. If, you, if you find yourself sprinting higher than 130 RPM, it's probably not optimal. Yeah. Need to shift. <laughs> probably. Very probably. Yeah. Unless you're just relying on speed and you've made it work in the past. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then finally, uh, control drills. Um, and this is really just AKA. Or, I'm sorry. This is AKA. Yeah. Coordination. This is really just coordination. Yep. And this is practice. This is, yeah. and, and this is another thing I got from, I think that very same article by Matt is that you have to make sprinting second nature. This isn't mm -hmm. something you can consciously think about. It just needs to be ready in an instant. 
unconsciously. And I've felt that like, so, and this is why we recommend that if you are going to be utilizing a sprint in your racing, that you, that you do this regularly in your training, because if I go without it for a month and then I go out and I just expect to be able to sprint really well in a race, it doesn't happen. No, you have to, not only do you have to practice it frequently, but you have to practice it with the form that you want to emulate or replicate on the race course. You have to do it just as you're going to do it in the race so that that top notch form comes through without thinking about it. Yep. You just recognize you want to close the gap on a wheel. You make it happen. You do it with the best form possible because you've practiced this so many times. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and practice comes in the form of both types of sprints seated and out of the saddle. Yep. So you're going to apply both, whether you, I mean, the types of racing we're talking about, you're going to apply both. So get good at both. Yeah. Yeah. There are times where a seated sprint absolutely makes sense. And we'll actually kind of get into that in a, in a little bit here mm-hmm. on some practical application for it. Yep. Not just out of the saddle. So just to, just to kind of put all that together, my recommended progression, and, and you'll see this if you follow a base build specialty cycle, if you start mm-hmm. with base and move through it, this kind of takes shape, um, depending on your discipline more specifically or less. But it all happens with uh, bursts to start, just little bits of innervation, just six, eight seconds sort of bursting, uh, sprinkled into an already uh, muscle endurance oriented workout, like mm-hmm. a sweet spot workout. Yep. Um, and then s- sprints to follow. And typically I'd you know, start with speed sprints. We're just working on form. Mm-hmm. Then we work on stomps, which are really strength sprints. And then you put the two together and you make them power sprints. I even follow this progression actually many times just during a normal sprint training workout. Oh yeah. yeah in the absolutely. sense that like, uh, I'll start out and I'll actually start out with lower cadence mm-hmm. efforts or sorry, high cadence efforts. Mm-hmm. We're basically leg speed. That's, is what that's I'm where after. the neuromuscular communication kind of ramps up. Yep. And then I'll work into things where I actually start to add in a little bit. Like I'll basically just make my cadence go a little bit lower, a little bit lower. So I'm going from 130 and then I'll just drop that, down. That, that strength element is kind of what uh, incorporates something called post-activation potentiation, where you're actually priming the muscles to do heavy load work. Mm-hmm. Then you put it together. Yep. And, and then at that point, then after that, then I work on on sprints that are basically at varying distances, right? And I'll work on doing it at sh- you know short sprints to start, and then I'll work on making them slightly longer and slightly and longer. And this is probably why in races you can effectively utilize your sprint. Yep. Because you practice it. Yeah. And, yeah. and you practice all elements of it. Yeah. And, and when you go through that whole, I think that like one thing that a lot of people skip are the sprints where you're not going crazy fast in terms of overall speed, but you're at a really high cadence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and those things add so much, they kind of like, they, they, they raise the stakes on the coordination that you need to have, because mm-hmm. it's so much more difficult to maintain coordination when you don't have all of that resistance to press against. It, very much so. I've tried, tried. Try climbing out of the saddle at 50% of your threshold. Yeah. See how good a climber you are when you don't have the support of of the resistance in in the drivetrain. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that kind of like points out a lot of things like, oh man, I need to refine X, Y, and Z. I refine those. And then that makes the rest of the sprints much more powerful in terms Mm -hmm. of numbers and then much faster in terms of speed. Yeah. Speed is, is one element, one very important element of sprinting. Yeah. Speed. Yeah. In particular. Yeah. Yeah. Helps a ton. So. So, and then we do have, so just super quickly, um, burst workouts, look at, uh, Ebbets, mm-hmm. um, for sprint workouts and not to be confused with sprint intensity training, sprint intensity training workouts, like chairing. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about workouts like Berryessa, where mm-hmm. you do a reasonably short sprint rest quite a long time. And the idea being to optimize power, not to optimize or increase fatigue, which is what the sprint intensity training is pretty much about. Yep. And then hard start intervals, look at crane or Zalibu or Richardson or broken finger. 
Yep. And then I have a lot of shorter practice hard start intervals, um, like backbone and crane. Crane's you, actually an opener that I use. It's a, it's a great workout. Yep. You, you, you do a really hard workout and then you settle in just long enough to know, okay, based on how hard I just sprinted, I think this is an effort level I could probably sustain for a few minutes. Yep. So it can help you fine tune and, and, and it can help you open too. Yeah. It's a, for, for me, I feel like that. Cause I, in the openers, when I do this as an opener workout, I'm doing that very thing. I'm trying to fine tune things, Yeah, sure. you know? Yeah, yeah and, super and helpful. Those intervals in particular can help you see, you know, if I sprint at 200%, not like you're going to be watching your power meter on a race course, but in, mm -hmm. in training you can, you can get a feel for what 200% feels like or 300% or whatever you're going to try to do. If I go that hard, can I follow it with a 90% effort? Because that's what I'm going to have to hang on to. <laughs> yeah. Or does it just crush me? Yeah. Or can I ride at 95% and maybe I can sprint a little harder? Or do I want to employ the 95% because that can probably... Sure. Start to shed people. Tying this all full, full circle to what you just talked about. Scientifically, we now know that anybody can sprint for a short period of time yes. because of the PCR system and everything else that we have the on board. The energy is there. Uh, but when we talk about what you can do thereafter, that's where everything else comes into play. And that's and when that's hard where... starts come into it. So, yeah. so it's not just doling out the sprint, but it's following that sprint immediately with yep. a pretty high level effort, which is what racing is. I mean, yes. this, the, the cyclocross starts we're talking about right here, the mountain bike starts mm -hmm. where everyone goes full gas for like 30, 40 seconds. Yep. And, and the people who aren't as committed or aren't as familiar, or maybe don't have the sprint capability. Yep. Basically they're, they're already however many riders behind. And these are all riders that as, as Corey pointed out, he'll catch over the course of a race. But what if you didn't have to catch those guys? What if you got to catch the next five guys up the road because you sprinted a little better and you hung with them? Yep. Yeah. It makes a huge difference. And this is why you'll see all throughout our specialty plans for these sort of races that require these sort of efforts, you'll see these workouts mixed in all throughout them because mm -hmm. they're preparing for degrees. that. And then this is why you'll also hear hard start intervals, uh, interval sessions also, uh, sometimes referenced as race winner intervals. I've heard that as well, Yeah, uh, because they're the Same sort idea. of things where you can really get the gap and then you can sustain the gap. Mm -hmm. the re really thing. the only difference with race winners is a stack a bunch of them together. Yep. So you, so you prepare both your body and your mind for the fact that, Typically you have to do it a number of times. Yeah, so you gotta exactly. be able to do it strongly a number of times. Right. So I getting back to the the practical tips on top of all of this. Yeah, and this is kind of where you take over. Yeah, on the positioning side of things. So call-ups obviously with cyclocross and mountain biking are extremely important. You could also say the same for some criteriums as well. Uh, if you get a bad call-up position, you've got oh, yeah. a criterium that has very short distance between turns and it has a lot of turns. Mm, so hard to move up. Or like a, or, or a decisive climb, something like that, uh, with like a technical turn thereafter because that will always cause things to accordion a whole bunch, something like that. Then it's call-up position matters a lot. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about call-up position before, but really it's all about earning the points that you need to earn beforehand. Uh, we've also referenced this before, but on in cyclocross racing, you have to race USAC races, and then you basically have to just get points of those races. And the and they have a whole ranking system for points that USAC uses, and you can go online, you can see where that's at, and then you can use that to rank yourself. On mountain biking, there are some weird workarounds, and it could technically happen in cross too. I just don't know if it does. But on mountain biking, there are a lot of fields that are scored like uh, like road fields where they have P1, 2. And in some cases, you'll race like in, in the Midwest, this is more common. In spots back east, this is common where they have pro one fields. Mm -hmm. And then as a result, everyone's scored together. And if I get last place, but somebody really fast like Keegan Swenson races, like the best bro, raises the tide. I get 
a ton of call-up points, right? Mm -hmm. My rating goes up or my ranking goes up. Whereas if I won my state championship and it was a really hard battle against a bunch of evenly matched riders, I would get less points. So it's a bit of a flawed system and it certainly behooves you to look into it and try to figure out how to get the best call-up points. And try to recruit a high-level professional rider to come to your room. <laughs> yeah, that could help too. <laughs> so, uh, that, that, so that aside, one of the big things that you have to remember, uh, whatever your call-up position is, is you don't necessarily have to outsprint everybody by going as hard as you can. You simply just have to have your handlebars or elbow in front of the next person. Mm -hmm. That's it. Because then at that point you control, right? So it's, it's really just about relative positioning instead of just thinking I have to sprint as hard as I can yeah. kind of sit outside of the moment. Cause if you're not on the front row, chances are, you're not going to be able to sprint as hard as you can because you'll be stuck behind something going on. Yeah. So in that situation, don't just give it absolutely everything. You may be fine with going 90% and that 90% may allow you to retain a lot of those PCR stores instead of exhausting them and be able to use them may not cause so much of a, a hit on the system, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it's something that would be, it's important to kind of get outside of the moment and just think about that. Um, also don't just go crazy hard. If you don't have to, if the course, for example, doesn't it doesn't get decisive or narrows down or doesn't have a bottleneck moment for a long time or doesn't have one at all, then, you know, going as hard as you possibly can isn't obviously a good idea. Mm. Um, you can probably pace things a little bit more evenly at the start if there isn't a bottleneck issue and then you'll be fine. Also, I've seen some really savvy and confident riders that have bad call up positions intentionally hang back because they know a bottleneck will uh -huh. happen if they trust that they are really that much better than the rest of the field, sure. that they'll be able to catch up to that bottleneck without as much energy used. And then they'll still be able to bridge to the front of the field. So, uh, but it's, man, you really got to be kind of a, a, a class above the rest of your competitors mm -hmm. to be able to make that work. Yeah. And you have to so, know it. Yeah. And then the other thing is don't pick the wrong people to go behind. And this can be super hard when you're not racing with people, you know, so locally, it's super easy. Like I know which people are really good off of a start, yep. right? Uh, if you see a new rider, uh, or if you see a rider, like, a, uh, if you see somebody that, that seems to be having trouble clipping into the pedals before they get in, probably not the best person probably to be behind. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So position yourself behind a more skilled rider, uh, or a more seasoned rider is usually a good approach to do mm -hmm. uh, for sure. Also don't necessarily try to offset yourself. Um, many times that just ends in you good point. trying to surge ahead and then you can't fit through the gap and then you have to bobble and it just causes, especially a lot of if you know, you have the wheel of a, <clears throat> a strong starter. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then a couple things to think about. So the surface that you're starting on, this is super important. <clears throat> a lot of the time races will have you start out on a variable surface. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that it's not going to be paved. It won't be really tacky dirt, something like that. It'll be like gravel. It'll be like DG something that'll be kind of loose. Pretty common. And it's, I don't know, it, it, some people say it's because it makes it a bit safer. So then people don't go quite as fast right off the gun. Uh, but I'd argue that it might be a little bit more dangerous just because of people losing traction yeah. and then everything else yeah. that comes with it. Regardless, it is the way it is. And one of the things that you need to think about, like we were talking about out of the saddle versus seated sprints, uh, when you start, uh, when we had cyclocross nationals here in Reno, for example, you started on a very hard packed surface with, uh, and it was like decomposed granite on top. So mm -hmm. very small pebbles on top of a very hard Loose surface. Over hard, yeah. It's yeah. And it basically, if you got out of the saddle and just tried to sprint as hard as you could, you would slide your back tire would lose traction. When you lose traction, that causes you to not to be able to clip in. And then instantly you've got two seconds that you've wasted in terms of your time, but then everybody else has gotten way ahead of you. 
start ruined. So uh, in that case, when you're not on the front line in that scenario, it's actually, and even if you are on the front line, it's not a bad idea to stay seated and work on your ability to be able to recruit power seated from the stop and then get to the point where once you get up to speed, then you can get out of the saddle and apply a bit more. But all that torque going into the tire when you're on a variable surface and you're not moving, it just wants to break loose a little bit too easily. So that's a, that's a key thing. Make sure that you look at the start surface and you know what you're going to do in terms of seated or standing, how are you going to output all that torque? It makes a, you can see riders that have a really bad call up position, but when they play their cards, right. In this mm-hmm. regard, mm-hmm. they're able to work their way past a whole lot of riders. Nice. Yeah. So helps a ton. Uh, and then, uh, the other thing that you have to do is you just have to practice these hard starts. Cause even on variable conditions, sometimes it's very possible to still do an out of the saddle, very effective sprint and maintain traction, but that takes a lot of practice. Mm-hmm. It takes this, uh, it's, it's this weird counterbalance of this, this storm of power and force and aggression, mm-hmm. but then also this kind of like, like the peace and the calm and the in sure. tune nature that you have to have to be Duck able to, water. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Like you're just treading on thin ice, basically trying to maintain that traction. So, um, that's, <clears throat> then also that's I would pay attention. Some, to. some good points, some finer points, but some very important ones are, you mentioned here, clip in speed, mm-hmm. line position and gear choice. Oh yeah. Yeah. And on the gear choice thing, a lot, I don't know what gear I started on my cassette and I probably should, hmm. but I know how it feels and I know what it, that it feels yeah, I've right. Never, I've never chosen a gear by knowing I'm in my 17. Yeah. Rather, I just look on the cog set and I can kind of associate, I know that's going to give me enough resistance to work against and it's not going to bog me down. Yep. One of the ways that you can do this to kind of help yourself figure out the gear is, uh, and once again, this, this takes a bit of fine tuning, but practice your starts first of all, and practice which gear you work best in. Cause everybody may work yeah. better starting from a slightly different gear, yeah. right? You may do better. If you start with a faster cadence, you may do better. If you start with a slower cadence, in most cases, when you're talking about starting on a variable surface, you want to start with a slower cadence, but you will not want to put out as much force and you'll just have to be okay with, you know, the initial snap being not quite as quick and it'll pay off right after. So you have to get familiar with it. But when you do Mm -hmm. that, um, when you shift into whatever gear you want to be in and you're on the start, get just into the position I'm motioning here on video. So if you're just listening to this, try to think of this, you know, envision this in your mind, Uh, have your foot in the position where you'd want it to start in a sprint. So usually that's somewhere around like one o'clock, somewhere like that. It's a crank position. Crank position. And then just allow your bike to roll forward to your arms extent and back and then feel how much your foot moves. And you kind of get in tune with Hmm. like, yeah, that's the right gear. And, and that's one way, unless you want to count your cogs, that's another way that you could do as well, but that's a, a good way to kind of feel. And I know what the okay. right feel is based yeah. on that yeah. in terms of how I want to start, uh, makes a, makes a massive, massive difference. So, and then on clip in speed, this is why a lot of people uh, make pedal decisions entirely based off of this, that because they can get in and out easier. And, uh, something with this, if you have worn out pedals or cleats, you can do a ton to be able to clip in easier, uh, uh, go through and apply some like the chain lube that you use on your chain. You might be able to just, first of all, make sure your cleats are very clean. Make sure your pedals are very clean. Sometimes it helps even to go in with a little bit of like a, a sandpaper, some fine grit sandpaper and rub them if they have any sort of like a staining or, uh, or rust or anything like sure. that. So uh, you can get them clean that way. And then also I, I usually take a little bit of the same chain lube that I use, uh, the squirt chain 
Brain Lube and I'll put that onto my cleat and I'll put that onto my pedal. The surface is where I make contact. Mm -hmm. And then I'll just make sure to wipe up the excess. Yeah. But that usually smooths things out a be, bit. Be choosy with that lubricant though, because mm -hmm. I put, I think, Bow Shield or I don't want to, I mean, perfectly good lube, but yeah. on my pedals made him feel like I was dancing on ice. Oh yeah. So it can get really pretty sketchy. unnerving. Yeah. Yep. And, and you have to play with the tension as well. And this is why a lot of people will actually have easier tension on the side that their foot, like, so let's say that you start with your right mm -hmm. foot forward yeah. and they'll have their left foot. There's the one that has to clip in once they start and they'll have lower Wider tension on that one. Yeah. So then they can clip in easier. So, uh, that's usually a common setup and you can even see, I think crank brothers has cleats where they have, like, you can kind of flip the orientation or something, I think. And then you can get ones that are basically easier to clip into mm -hmm. and then not as easy really? to clip into. Yeah. So kind of different approaches you can take, uh, to doing that, but yeah. And then once again, we talked about sprinting to kind of start this whole thing off and we talk about maintaining tension so you can maintain torque the same exact thing. Just remember you're sprinting off the line too. And the same thing applies if you don't have tension all the way through and kind of this like tension where you're almost like pressing backward on the handlebars and using your sit bones on the saddle is like a really like strong anchor sure. point. It's really tough to be able to drive your weight down into those wheels if you don't have that all set up. So, uh, so yeah, that's where that is. Good stuff. Uh, reviews. First of all, I just want to mention something. Uh, thank you so much for all the podcast reviews. They're awesome. There's another spot too, uh, where you can review trainer road, actually just the whole entire you know, the, the, the whole training system in general That's trainerroadcom slash review. So if you're listening to this and you like trainer road, please go over there and leave us a five-star review. And then just let us know if we need to do something to earn that five-star review. We'd be happy to do it. So, uh, let's go into Steven's question. Cool. He says, what is the threshold for, for morning fasted training? It's a question a bunch of us have. He says, what I mean by this is I do my first training fasted every morning. However, I take pre-workout and prebiotics. The pre-workout is marked at 80 calories and the prebiotics are marked at 20 calories and two gummies. I also take a multivitamin and one aspirin. He just mentions for health. And he says, but those don't have calories. Uh, he says, thanks. Love the podcast. Makes my commute much more enjoyable. Mm. So, this, yeah, yeah, we so all have Steven, this one. Um, Sorry to say, don't really know. And and I'm not the only one who doesn't really know. I was listening to, it was either a Peter Atia or a Joe Rogan, but I'm pretty sure it was Dom D'Agostino. Mm -hmm. And he is one of the foremost authorities on everything keto. And he's a very knowledgeable man. Mm -hmm. um, if it wasn't him, it was maybe on a Sigma Nutrition podcast, but it was a resource I trust. Mm -hmm. And I listened to a lot of podcasts over the course of, I haven't been here for a couple of weeks, so I can't remember which one it was. I tried to find it. I couldn't. But again, yeah. a resource I trust. Um, they talked about, does black coffee uh, mm -hmm. interrupt the fast? Does ha a little bit of half and half in your black coffee, BCAAs, collagen? <clears throat> excuse me, sodium artificial sweeteners. Yep. Um, and, and, and while we can say definitively, well, these things do impact insulin, what impact does insulin have on the fast? And mm -hmm. impact in particular, are we talking about, is it a disruption of the autophagy that we're looking for, the cell cleanup process that takes place? Does it disrupt the, the AMPK signaling, the AMPK signaling that we're trying to achieve with fasted rides? Mm -hmm. Sadly, that whether or not these disruptions occur and the extent of the disruptions ha ha hasn't been studied or if it has been studied, it's in the works right now or it's emerging science, but it's not out there. Cool. And, and it might be the sort of thing that's never going to get enough funding to be out there. It's tough, right? Yeah. So we don't know. Yeah. We don't know. It'd be great if we did. <laughs> yeah. And that's something that we like, I think everybody has thought when they do fasted training, they're like, I yeah. wonder, you know, and if anybody knows of a study that is out there, that's the, you know, escaped my attention, please point it out to us. Yeah. Cause, uh, uh, I'm far from alone. I'm thinking that 
the, the research just isn't there. Yeah. Uh, you can go to forum.trainerroad.com and this is episode 236 and you can find it there and be able to do it there. Let's go into Matt's question it says, love the podcast and your product five stars were given a long time ago. Do you know if Apple lets you vote again at some point or is it a once in a lifetime thing? I think it's just once in a lifetime, but like I said, you could also go over to trainerroad.com slash reviews can review it on the Google play store, uh, plenty of other spots or just share the podcast. Honestly, that's hugely helpful. Yeah. So, uh, it says my question is regards to cool downs. I'm at a point in life where low volume is probably as much time as I am allowed to be on the bike with an occasional plus version of, a, of the suggested workout, which sometimes the plus version is an increase in intensity, but sometimes it's an increase in terms of uh, time as well. Yep. It's yep. not a consistent thing. It, it is yep. safe to say it. It makes it harder. Yep. Yeah. He says, I usually work out in the morning and have a pretty tight schedule in order to change and get to work on time. Sometimes I'm in between two workout variations and found that I can do a plus version if I finish without the cool down. My legs usually feel fine after, and it does not affect my subsequent workouts, but is this okay? Am I losing something by skipping the cool down? Thanks again for a great product and happy Thanksgiving. And so Matt, this is kind of another one of those situations that I just described with uh, information on fasting is there aren't really studies to support cooling down. There aren't really studies to refute cooling down. Mm -hmm. There are simply known occurrences. Sure. If we know these things happen and they're beneficial, then there's probably some benefit to cooling down. Whether yeah. or not it's a necessity is, is pretty uh, contentious actually. Right. Yep. Um, so if we just understand that the objective of cooling down is we're trying to return to a parasympathetic state. We've wound ourselves up um, and that's the, the rest and digest. Mm -hmm. We've wound ourselves up, put ourselves in a very sympathetic state due simply to exercise. And we need to reverse that whole process. Yep. Um, in doing so, what, one of the things that we're after is we want to facilitate our endocrine recovery. And, and in particular, we want to reduce catecholamines. So epinephrine and norepinephrine are both part of that sympathetic or fight or flight system or that response. Mm -hmm. And in the brain, Norepinephrine increases our arousal state, makes us more alert. Uh, it also leads to restlessness and anxiety. Those mm -hmm. are all things that are going to help us evade, evade danger. Sure. Or in the case of a race, you know, liberate energy and work hard. Um, in the body, epinephrine, and there's some overlap between the two, um, it raises our blood sugar levels, obviously necessary if we're going to do hard work, um, increases our heart rate, increases the blood flow to the working muscles, decreases blood flow to our GI tract. These are all things, again, we want to reverse. We want yeah. to bring that back around so that we can wind down, move on with our day or, you know, go to sleep, whatever. Right. Um, and then also along the endocrine, endocrine lines is uh, glucocorticoids, in particular cortisol, which is, again, part of this sympathetic nervous system. Mm -hmm. And really anything veering parasympathetic is going to help you bring cortisol down. So right. anything relaxing. I mean, it could be anything from deep breathing to eating some carbohydrates to a number of things. But, mm -hmm. but trying to reverse the, the sympathetic state. Yeah. Yep. So another, uh, I guess, vote in favor of cooling down is uh, it reduces the effects of the post-exercise hypotension that I've talked about a number of times. Mm -hmm. So you're working hard, you stop working, you feel dizzy, mm -hmm. or in some cases actually faint. Yeah. So the scenario being you're working, you know, he heavy sustained effort, lots of blood in your legs, heart rates elevated. And we, as uh, endurance athletes typically have bigger, stronger heart uh, ventricles in particular. So chambers, mm -hmm. they push more blood. We have blood vessels with healthier, healthier endothelial tissue. So they're more pliable. They open more mm -hmm. and we're pushing a lot of blood into them. So there's a whole lot of exercise or a, a whole lot of blood being pushed to the exercising muscles in particular yep. our legs. And if we go from a heavy workload to just stopping to, to work out cessation, the blood can pool. 
because uh-huh. you think about it, your heart slowed down, your blood pressure's on the decline, muscle action ceases. What is assisting that venous return? What's pushing it back up to your brain so that you don't get lightheaded, so that you don't faint? Uh-huh. But this does demonstrate that this is very much intensity dependent. Yeah. So if you're doing an endurance ride at 60%, you're probably got, not going to be as dependent on a cool down to avoid something like this post-exercise hypotension, this low blood, blood pressure that follows hard work. Yeah, if you're doing like if you're gold doing sprints. hard stuff though, exactly. <laughs> right. And you're off, right like, off the bike and in grab a beer. A beer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> expect, in a bar. Expect to be <laughs> challenged in terms of your balance. Yeah. I <laughs> mean, um, then we do know that the, the light activity or... Uh, yeah, the light activity that follows does facilitate blood flow. And uh-huh. the argument is that extra blood flow enhances recovery because we're, you know, pushing nutrients in, pulling byproducts out either through the lymph or or the blood itself. Um, but again, no strong data to support this, uh-huh. but empirically it makes sense. Yeah. Um, there's also not no research to support the idea that it reduces soreness or DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness. Yeah. So th- if that's what you're looking for, this probably isn't the way to achieve it. Yeah. Um, I mentioned lymph, similar to the rationale behind uh, recovery rides even. We're, we're trying to get on there and we're trying to move gently. We're not trying to inflict any stress on the muscle. Rather, we're trying to facilitate blood in, lymph out. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, minor but real benefits to cooling down. Um, you can accumulate extra ride time. It feels good. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just feels good. You, you kind of bask in the the glow of a, the, the after effects mm-hmm. of, of a hard workout. Um, and there are no known negative effects. Mm-hmm. So if you want to do a cool down, don't ever beat yourself up for doing it. Um, it definitely facilitates cooling, especially in the case of your fan still being on, you're drinking cold fluids or maybe some ice or slushy or something, depending on your scenario. Yep. Um, it helps you equalize with the ambient temperature. These are all beneficial, especially if, and I think we'll get to this question, you're yep. going to bed afterward. Oh, yeah. Um, and then the only reason I even need, I think is it's an opportunity to disconnect from the psychological stress of the workout. Oh yeah. Workouts are hard. They wind you up and you know, I mean, going into a hard workout, you carry a ton of stress into that workout. Yeah. You deal with a ton of stress over the course of that workout. You got to dissipate that stress after the workout and no better time than a cool down. Yep. Yeah. hundred percent. I think all of us listening to this have... <clears throat> recognize when we go through and do a workout that we kind of turn into a different person when it's really tough (laughs) and it's a little embarrassing sometimes. Yeah, yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. Uh, I get accused of that all the time with like racing. Uh, Nate always is teaching a class to seven people who are (laughs) fresh out of bed. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) You're being a, not the nicest guy. Right. So it's kind of a, yeah, it's a, it's a totally different experience. Um, but you actually, you're talking about cooling your, your core body temperature Mm -hmm. down. Nate's joining us. There he is. He's here. Um, so uh, let's let's actually chat. This perfect transition. It's as if we planned it. it almost. Uh, um, uh, so let's get into Auntie's question. It says, uh, thanks for the podcast and constant stream of information. You've been talking about late night training and it being less than optimal. Unfortunately, I'm in the situation. Five kids and constantly changing work hours where I'm forced to train mostly at night. Uh, many nights at 8 p.m. is the earliest time to start with sweet spot based mid volume training uh, rides taking mostly 60 to 90 minutes. That's his current situation. Says, I was wondering what I and others who struggle with late training could do to help recovery. I try to be at bed by 11 p.m. and keep my sleep at eight hours or more. Um, but do you guys know what else could be done? So this is kind of like an interesting point that, that was brought up here about the sleep aspect. Because many times, and this is like before we even go to the question, but mm-hmm. many times when you train late, you still have to get up very early and you can't get eight hours of sleep. Yeah. Um, but in this case, this is happening. So there's there's still eight hours of sleep is, is good. It, Which, it is, but the quality of the sleep is what's in question. Question I think. 10, Nate. Is where question 10. Yeah, there we are. Before we go into all this stuff, yeah. I wanted to say that, let's see, 8 p.m. is the earliest time to start training. So maybe done by nine. Mm-hmm. And then 
uh, be in bed by 11. Yeah. I kind of follow, I'm shifted forward, but I do that like every single day. Yeah. I think probably the the worst part, maybe we'll get into it. Like if she starts at eight, ends at nine, goes to bed at 9.30, yeah. that would be impossible. But like a two hour afterwards, terrible. I almost feel like you kind of get this, that's almost like when I start to crash from after workout, especially if you eat, where you, could, sure. you could get tired. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's not probably, it might not be as bad as you think it is. Right. It's just shifted later, so yes. to speak. But poor sleep quality. It's very bad. Yeah, yeah and we'll get into And that's, that's kind of my argument. It's not my argument against it. It's my biggest concern. Absolutely. So, uh, Auntie says, I was wondering what I and others who struggle with late training could do to help recovery. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the main crux of what we want to talk about here. Yeah, because there's no argument against it. You have to train when you have to train. I mean, your schedule is what it is. You make the best of whatever your situation is. Yep, absolutely. Um, first and foremost, if you have this option, if this is a possibility based on your rise time and how everything lines up, try to end your workout two to three hours pre-bedtime. Mm -hmm. That forgives a lot of sin. That are, are A lot of the ill effects that come with working out close to bed dissipate strongly over the course of a two or three hour break. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I said like the stop exactly. at nine, go to bed at if 11. You can, if you can. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, if you have to be up at five o'clock, that's uh, changes yeah. things a bit. I mean, you're going to short change your sleep. It's, it gets tricky, very mm -hmm. tricky. Um, and then of course, like we just said, cool down. There are a lot of benefits to cool down. Re regulating your body temperature is one of those things. For sure. And I'm going to explain specifically how that ties to um, sleep quality. Cool. So with respect to the importance of lowering your core body temperature, um, sleep onset, so falling asleep, can be really difficult with an elevated core temperature. Oh, I feel this every time after I do like a hard race in the evening, oh, or sad. I do Those like anything worst, like that. Especially in the summer, so where hard. it's already hot outside, <laughs> yeah. and if you don't have a house with air conditioning, I mean, it can be brutal. You yeah, just know you're not getting good sleep that Flash night. Flash bike backs to Kona. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when we didn't have AC. Oh, or a single track six. Single track six. six. Oh, that so was hot. Chad, yeah. everyone, imagine Chad with like, <laughs> I think he wore his fishnet base layer, but then yeah. he had like- I uh, did not. Yeah. Did at the room? The yeah, room you had, did. No, I yeah. did not. <laughs> and then he had, not. no, but on top of that, so it was like camelbacks, but he like froze the bladders yeah, and he had, was, there had these strings yeah. and he put it around his neck and it would like touch his, <laughs> I had, ordered, walk around like I had that. ordered some, some like mesh, some really That's nice true. underwear from Mack Weldon and yep. it, came, it came in this- plastic bag with this tiny little elastic string around it. Yeah. So out of desperation, I filled that with ice and I would dangle it around my neck and I, yeah. I probably still have scars from it, but either way, I was, I needed to cool down. By the way, pro so tip, hot. Mac Weldon. Yeah. You like it? Yeah. I love it. That's you like favorite. it? That's yeah. all. Yeah. Socks Me too. Yeah. Yeah. So three of us wear the same underwear <laughs> just in case y'all wanted because to know. Because everybody needed to know that. Detail. No, but yeah. no, actually, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, we, don't <laughs> we don't share. Like the uh, AirNet, is that the one? Yep. Yeah. It's the yeah. best one. They don't give us anything, right? So AirNet X. I wish they would. <laughs> yeah, they, would. they should, Not cheap, right? cheap, but it They're the only time. underwear I, I've worn in the last but two years. You told me about it and now I, that's, that's all I do. I actually, I had like all these hands yeah. ones, yeah. threw them all away. I have all the same color too. And then I just rotate them through. To this point, it's really like a, if you are the sort of person that trains and then goes to bed sh shortly thereafter, mm -hmm. you'll probably want to look into optimizing what sort of sheets you use, what sort of mattress you have, oh, yes. what sort of yeah, all we, those we've things actually got to a cool product off. recommendation. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll get to it. Yeah. yeah. We'll see. We'll, we'll talk about it. Yeah. I just got delivered. Okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, I'm Please, Chad, Let's ahead. talk about underwear more. <laughs> no, let's go to chat. <laughs> okay. They make really good socks. Too. Yeah, they do actually. Oh, yeah. Socks also. Yeah. But yeah. so does Jack. Uh, Alberts. Alberts socks are, are giving them a run for their money. Oh, really? Wow. Again, that's so neither here nor there. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is <laughs> important. This is what happens when I come in. Like, yeah, I know, right? Let's, let's, let's get change it up, guys. Let's go. Okay, so again, sleep onset can be really difficult if your core temp's up. 
So the, the objective is going to be to get core temp down. Um, Matthew Walker in his book, Why We Sleep, mm-hmm. if you haven't read it, just read it. It's, it's Super so good. good on so many levels. Talks about circadian alterations in, in body temperature, and they happen anyway, regardless of sleep. Mm-hmm. So, so we're on a circadian, circadian rhythm, our temperature ebbs and flows. doesn't matter if we're in bed or not, it's going to happen. So we, you know, we try to time it or facilitate it. Um, the uh, study in 97 by Murphy Campbell said, and I quote, it's suggested that a rapid decline in core temperature, core body temperature increases the likelihood, the likelihood of sleep initiation and may facilitate an entry into the deeper stages of sleep. This is a crucial thing. This is information that's been out there for quite some time and it's been backed up again and again. And all, all we're really looking for, and it's not a big change. We're looking for like maybe a one degree Celsius drop. You know, mm-hmm. somewhere in the ballpark of two to three degrees Fahrenheit. It's not a big drop, but it is a drop that tells the body it's time to time to slow down, time to you know, sleep in this case. Mm-hmm. With intense exercise, however, that's a that's a very tall order. Yeah. Um, and kind of a side note, this is probably another case against pre-bedtime alcohol. Boo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not that we need another reason to not ingest alcohol prior to bed, but it does it doesn't elevate core temp, it actually elevates skin temp, but you know, high skin should, should in bed. I, should I do all my drinking before noon? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Honestly, that's the argument he makes. Really? And I'm, I'm starting to practice at 9 a.m. every day. What's, it, what's his name? Campbell? This is for Campbell. I want to go back. You know how people do like end of year reviews? I want to go back and find every time where Chad has done research relating to alcohol and how sad he is for the whole podcast and kind of put it together it's, in a compilation. It's a podcast. Is, is there anything? anything like there's been nothing. no positive. No, I think the one nothing. thing, maybe it's culture onset. or um, not oh, culture, yeah. but... Uh, um, being with friends and being happy. Sure. The social, yeah, like social, yeah, aspect, the social aspect, aspect of it. Absolutely. I think yeah, there there's something one. there, but in terms of health, not in terms of sleep quality. Yeah. Oh, no, no. It I'm saying nothing well, good for sleep. I think there's, well, yeah, nothing for sleep. I'm thinking of other health things. Except, and, except sure. it, it, there's some artery stuff, but then it was kind of like questioned later. Yeah. And, it can facilitate yeah. sleep onset. So it can help you fall asleep, but in terms <laughs> of just, sleep maintenance, it's yeah. garbage in yeah. terms of deep REM sleep, or I think maybe it's the <laughs> REM dreaming sleep. Either way. Yeah. I've blacked out a few times. So yeah, doesn't that help sleep? Doesn't it? Yeah. You can't help it. Sleep. Yeah. Just kidding. Everyone. We threw you off chat. So, um, the, let's see. So with alcohol, this kind of ties in too, but if you increase your heart rate, you increase your vasodilation, you know, both things exercise do, and sadly, so does, so does alcohol intake. Um, you're raising your skin temperature and, and we raise skin temperature basically to pull heat from the core. So mm-hmm. higher skin temperature typically means lower core temperature. That's, that's the whole purpose of heating up our skin. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what exercise does. And, and it just shows that this is how our body's cool. So the point is cooling the skin is a good way to cool the core. Mm-hmm. So, and, and not that alcohol uh, really figures into this at all. I'm just going to leave that alone. Um, <laughs> it's just sad. so, but th- this is why pre-sleep showers. So after you've done like the, the Tuesday night races that we do in the middle of the summer, or geez, the worst. it's probably still 80 degrees at night. Uh-huh. The sun's yeah. gone down and it's still 80 degrees and you come home and you're all revved up. Yes. Eat your food. You're on fire. Yeah. So a cool shower is not a bad thing to do. And if you, in lieu of a shower, you can just splash water on your face and head, on mm-hmm. your hands and feet, you know, all those surfaces with all those anastomoses that we talked about way back when. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't have to be cool water. It just has to be something that allows evaporation, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what offloads the heat. Um, it can even be very hot water and, and I'm not talking about after a race, but if you take like a pre-bed shower or bath, mm-hmm. getting out of the bath, the drop in temperature you get from the hot water into the, the ambient temp is usually enough to kick off that whole, you know, signaling process and melatonin release and all those things that facilitate better sleep. And we talked about this. I, I, I take super hot showers mm-hmm. and probably for way too long. And <laughs> I, it's, I have like an hour period after time where I am just like so hot, the same covers feel really hot. 
Also hot tubs. People Miserable. say they put them to sleep. Man, I get so do the opposite. Oh yeah, yeah. I get like it raises my core temperature yeah. and I, Your temperature um, has to go down for good sleep. It's super just... hot in your blankets, and that's how I can tell, right? Like if in the same yeah. room, temperature of room. If you're putting on blankets and you're really hot, but then later in the night you're not really hot, mm -hmm. uh, that's that core changing. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's a subtle shift. Like I said, it's only a degree or two or three, depending Celsius versus Fahrenheit. Yeah, you guys are going to try, or you're you're going to try something, right, Nate? Yes, try it, I Nate. bought a product. Uh, so this is not an endorsement. They don't give us anything. I yes. paid retail. Um, I'm looking at for a while. Someone actually in the forum recommended it. Uh, um, there's like a thread about like bed, kind of like a sleep thread. Yep. People saying things they like. And someone asked me about my weighted blanket, which I do like. Um, I really like that. Huh. Uh, it's like a 20 pound weighted blanket. Feels good. Yeah. Uh, this is a, it's called the Uller or also the chili pad. And it's like a, a pad that you put on below your sheet and water runs through it. Um, and there's a little unit that uses a fan to cool the water or it heats or it. Heats it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So you can set Tucker's, a temperature. Tucker's showing it right now. So if you're joining us live. Yep. And, and when we say Uller, it's O-O-L-E-R. Like but cooler. it's super expensive. Cooler minus a C. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like $800 for half of a Cal King. That's crazy. <laughs> but what I'm thinking is like <clears throat> sleep's so important. Yeah. And I wake up a lot, like in the middle of the night, either too cold or too hot. Yep. If I'm training a lot, I'll have like night sweats. Yeah. And then you get cold after that. Yeah. Yeah. If over, if this thing lasts a couple of years and I can get better quality sleep for those couple of years, my productivity will be better. Like everything in my life will be better. And to me, mm -hmm. that's probably worth one less carbon part, uh, part on my bike. Sure. Honestly. Yeah. yeah, along those lines. If I it mean, works. So uh, just some people talking about, I want to say a couple more things. Um, some people say maybe it doesn't get cold enough. So if you have like a really hot room, I mean, like in Kona, if it's like 90, it might not overpower oh, yeah. that. So it might not combat a hot, hot day, but if you have your thermostat set at a regular. We'll see, right? Yeah. So and anyways, the, the person in the forum really liked it. They said they they thought it wasn't working, but then when they, they didn't use it, they got super hot. Huh. Um, and there's also a setting that's kind of cool that can warm you up in the morning. The theory is awesome. Get out of bed. That's, yeah. that's the great. To, yeah. Get, to, to cold sleepers. Should for be sure. so hot that I can't get out of sleep or that I don't want to stay in bed. Yeah, exactly. It goes up to like 105 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know that in Celsius, but pretty warm. That's a lot. Huh. Yeah. I've, I've actually, low 40, so right. I've actually programmed our thermostat that way in our house so that like when it's time to get up for, for all of us, we all get up at the mm -hmm. same time. Same here. That it gets really warm. And then that makes it so that I just, I, I don't want to get it. I don't so want to be in bed. I'll use this so and I'll talk about it later. Thing. I feel like I should wait until the summer too. But anyways, it's like a different experience in the winter than it is in the summer, right? Yeah, undoubtedly. Um, sure. But I'll let you know if I personally like it. But again, don't just go out and buy it because it could, I don't know what it's like. Yeah. yeah we have no data just yeah. yet. So one interesting part on this is like you've done your workout. We've talked about the cooling part of things. But then I guess if you just talk about like schedule after the race. Yeah. That's like another thing where you just you <clears> kind of <throat> have to like whittle it down to like what's your highest priority? Like do you need to get food in yep. or do you need to get to sleep? <clears throat> and that's, Like which that's, one's more important? That's the dilemma. And honestly, if I had to prioritize one over the other, I'd go back to sleep. Yeah. I'll, I'll get to why in a minute. But in terms of nutrition, um, there are certain opportunities that this scenario presents you with. If, if you're interested in the whole sleep low approach where you want mm -hmm. to sleep on carb, uh, you know, carb depleted muscles, glycogen depleted muscles, this is an opportunity to do it. Just follow, just make sure you're not starving yourself because, you know, basically going to bed very hungry, that's not going to facilitate sleep either. Mm -hmm. So make sure you get a little bit of protein, a little bit of fat, but, you know, eat a meal, just keep it low on the carbohydrate side. Maybe just focus on vegetables. Yep. Um, go too high carbohydrate and that can impact uh, your sleep, in particular, your deep sleep, but oddly increases your REM or dreaming sleep. 
So it's kind of, kind of a trade-off there. Maybe not this, the soundest argument hmm. against it. Um, and, and then high carbohydrate intake before bed can also increase the number of awakenings. Hmm. As can alcohol. I can attribute, or I can uh, <laughs> attest to that. Um, Another sad panda. I'm myself as an alcoholic here. I really don't drink as much as it sounds like I do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a brand now, Chad. Okay, you just so, have to uphold the brand, you know? Well, what does it sound like? <laughs> I, I like my drink. I don't drink a ton, though. Um, okay, so my stance, basically due to the fact that there's not large enough or long enough studies and mm -hmm. the human subjectivity that figures that into anything nutritional. Yeah. Don't overthink it. Mm -hmm. You know, eat a decent meal, see how you sleep. It's it, as far as the nutrition advice, I think it's very much a trial and error process. There's no hard rules to say, this is what's going to work best for everybody. And this is not going to work for anybody. Yeah. Um, the consensus advice in terms of the bitter research that there is, is go to bed, neither too full nor too hungry. Um, don't go excessively high on the carbohydrate and try to avoid sugar altogether. So plate of brownies is bad. Probably. Yeah. yeah not and ideal. caffeine. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then caffeine is unanimously a terrible thing before bed. Yeah, I don't sure. think like many hours. To told that, but yes, it takes, it has a half-life of a long half-life. Let's you, not. You probably want to stop by one o'clock in the afternoon. I half-life. Yeah. Right? It's like. It's crazy long. It's. And it depends. By the time on it's going to get your system. Yeah. The other thing that I was mm -hmm. not aware of that is, makes so much sense now is that a lots of decaf coffees they lie to you. They, yeah, they not, have yeah. they have caffeine. It's not just not, trace. Yeah. It's more than trace. Like yeah. 20, 30 grams. In exactly. Places. And if yeah. I have like, I'm, this is a, like a K cup. I don't know which ones do it, which even makes it worse for me, yeah. but I'll have two or three cups at night. Cause I really like it. Yeah. And 30. So then you're getting 90 grams of caffeine right before bed. Yeah. And then I've been there where you just kind of sit and you're like, why am, why am I not tired tonight? Yeah. I can't, I was actually just reading about this. I can't remember which ones have like, there are some that have like two to three milligrams. So they're like, they're, they're true. They're not true decaf still, but they're, but they're down. very yeah. low down, but the majority of them actually have more than you think. Well, then you it's have to have 90, yeah. you know, 200, something like that. But yeah. 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 And then yeah. how sensitive are you to caffeine? Yeah. I mean, if you're, whether you're, was it CYP? 1A or CYA1P yeah. or 2P yeah. based on the allele or how you respond to caffeine that and can further this issue. Yep. But it impacts everybody. So even if you think you're like, oh, I can sleep fine with caffeine. Like I think in why they sleep, they talked about that. They hook stuff up to you and it impacts your sleep like uh, caffeine. Uh, yeah. You can't just. Habituation can, yeah. max, can mask it. Like you Although can think that you're some fine. Some people though, it does make them sleepy. Is that what you're talking about? No, I don't there, that, that's new. There is, there is a, uh, it's genetic and I should have oh, looked this up ahead yeah. of time, but some people, and it does the opposite sets thing. Instead of stimulate you, it brings you down. It just makes crazy zero sense I know. to me. I and can't I even imagine how physiologically that works. I don't know. The body is amazing. <laughs> Isn't uh, it though? Isn't it? <laughs> anyways, I would say if at night too, uh, if you drink too much hot stuff, it can also make you kind of a, like physically hot. Oh yeah. I mean, um, we've talked about cooling core temperature with things you ingest. It's yep. very effective, right? Yeah. yeah. So the opposite works too. Mm -hmm. And if you want to have a, a, a hot drink at night um, and you have any problems with the, you know, getting corporate whatever, herbal teas, naturally decaf, like peppermint, mm. peppermint mm. tea is not going to have any caffeine in yep. it. They, they don't do a process of decaffeination. Mm -hmm. So you're fine. Um, but like a black tea that's decaf, I would stay away from that. And, and make it iced tea. If you can. You could do it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cool. yeah. I'm saying make it iced tea. Cause I remember I rode to, we live in Reno. I rode to Carson city. It's like a 35 mile ride. Met my dad for breakfast, ordered hot coffee and sat and swept, sweat bullets the entire, the entire yeah. meal. Yeah. yeah. I, I come, you know, it, it wasn't nearly as hard as a race either. And here I am sitting in basically a 70 degree temperature, drinking a hot drink and my body will not wind down. Yep. Yeah. So in terms of cooling, don't, don't use hot drinks. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Okay. So back to the, the sleep topic. So I said, you know, if I had to choose between nutrition or sleep, which would I emphasize? And it, it, it absolutely emphatically 
Sleep. Um, a quote from Matthew Walker, uh, the shorter you sleep, the shorter your life. And it sounds like a strong, it is a strong statement. He bases that on 20 large scale epidemiological studies tracking millions of people over many decades and where they recognize causal links to lack of sleep and heart disease, obesity, dementia, diabetes, cancer, mm -hmm. all the bigs. They're, they're all there and they're all tied to sleep in one way or another. It's not to say lack of sleep causes these things, but it does them no favors. Yep. And if this is the case, then when it comes to training adaptation, it's kind of a Peter, you know, Rob Peter to pay Paul sort of scenario. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not going to benefit from hard training if you're going to shortchange the recovery process. So, um, and, and to further, you know, to, to heap onto that sleep deficiency actually reduces our growth hormone and elevates our cortisol levels. Yep. Neither of those things are desirable in terms of performance adaptation, um, testosterone levels drop, which is going to have an impact on your bone density, on your muscle synthesis. I mean, mm -hmm. again, not desirable in terms of training adaptation. Yeah. So then on top of it, <clears throat> no, no endurance athlete wants, wants to be fat or fatter, you know, or have more unnecessary body fat and, yep. and lack of sleep increases this adiposity. So sleep deficiency to, to put one word on it, mangles our appetite response, leptin levels, which, you know, tell us we're full. I'm sorry. Yep. Leptin levels, which tell us are full, go down. Ghrelin levels, which tell us we're hungry, go up. Mm -hmm. um, we get an increase in the release of internal cannabinoids, endocannabinoids, which, you know, cannabis, it's right there in the mm -hmm. word. These are the things that make, you know, increase appetite, increase likelihood of snacking. Mm -hmm. um, with these things, they're almost behavioral issues though. So there is some level of, of conscious control. You can say, I recognize that I'm hungry, but I'm not going to eat. Mm -hmm. What is beyond our control consciously though, is what happens in, in terms of that cortisol that I just mentioned and its effects on our microbiome. It can actually prevent proper nutrient uptake. Mm -hmm. So the food we're eating isn't even doing us all the service that it could do. <laughs> yeah. um, in terms of insulin sensitivity, that is greatly reduced depending on the severity of our sleep deficit or our, <clears throat> our sleep uh, deficiency. If you were to see your general practitioner after a few nights of bad sleep, you might actually get misdiagnosed or misclassified as pre-diabetic because your circulating blood glucose is so high mm -hmm. because of this insulin sensitivity. And as a note, this is a good time to mentioned that general practitioners in Australia are apparently specialists. So I'm going to try to steer away from that term and use the term primary care provider from this point forward. Cool. Thank you to the Aussie who pointed that out to me. Cool. So oh, and then, go ahead. And then finally, just a couple of short points. Um, lack of sleep compromises our immune response also. And that's obviously not favorable in terms of all the training stress we're already inflicting on our bodies and the challenges we're already issuing to our immune system. Mm -hmm. And these are not just short-term issues. These can last months to years. Bad sleep for, a, for an extended period of time can have a, a long lasting impact. Mm -hmm. And then uh, finally, we'll get to the, how it can affect, I'm sorry, impact your gene transcriptome. But that's that's a, a segue into the next question. But I figure we're going to talk about this a little more. Yeah. So Chad, how much is enough sleep? Typically, uh, across studies, it seems that they seem to draw a line at about seven hours. And that's not to say seven hours is adequate in all situations either. Just that seven hours, below seven hours is where... The wagons, the, the wheels start to come off the wagon. I yeah. thought, uh, what's Ideally, they want eight. eight to nine hours. Yeah. But mm -hmm. seven is where, it, it is that hard line where below it. You start to see starts bad effects. All, all the studies, and anytime they talk about an increase in rate of heart disease or an increase in insulin insensitivity or sensitivity, et cetera, those come with six hours and less. Mm -hmm. So seven hours is kind of the higher side of that, but ideally eight or nine hours with Walker, what he, especially with athletes, what he argues in the why we sleep book is that, um, 
Two, they've looked at people who say, I can get by with five. No, mm -hmm. they can't. But they think they can. They think they can. But it's like you're in, you're always in the fog, so you don't know like <clears throat> yeah, how well you could perform. Yeah. yeah, and you're actually hurting your health. It's just so like I've, a fatigued athlete who's always fatigued. They don't recognize the difference between feeling fresh and feeling fatigued. And yeah. just getting one night's sleep where you get eight hours if you're in that rut isn't just going to magically pull you out of that too. Like, nope. the, like you, you said. You can't repay sleep debt. That's yep. why that's perfect segue to what I was going to say. That's what Chad recommends to sleep rather than eat is because you could repay eat debt. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's easy. Yeah, you can make up you for just that. eat a little We're more all very morning. good at that. Yeah, actually. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and with all the Ill, or Ill effects that come with it, there are probably a couple mm -hmm. of positive ones. You know, maybe you burn yeah, a yeah, right. extra fat over the course of the evening. So yeah. exactly. You could have less calories ingested over the week. Mm -hmm. So, um, so every night, this is how I understand it, Chad, correct me if I'm wrong. For every night that you're not getting your seven, eight hours, mm -hmm. you're damaging your body. And in no amount of sleep in the future <clears throat> will helps it. with that. As so, I understand it, and as Matt Walker puts it, or Matthew Walker puts it, and a number of other sleep experts put it, yes. Yeah. You can feel less tired mm -hmm. by, you know, you sleep three nights one night, the next night you sleep 10 or 12. You'll feel less tired, but the damage you did yeah. does not get fixed You can put yourself on. back on track, but yeah, the underlying damage is still there. Yeah. So that's why we should always... Try to get that sleep, sleep, sleep. Go yeah. for sleep. And new parents. And, and sorry, not just, just I was just going to say, what this is, what this is <laughs> laid out is that to not have children and to not, to not party, basically. That's like what I've learned from this, right? Like, <laughs> and, and to not like, go to medical school. <laughs> That's one of the, oh. the greatest crimes against sleep is um, these 24 hour rotations. Or the they inflict on people who need irony. to be like soaking things up intellectually. The irony, and they're right? challenging the brain. Oh, the irony. We it's, need them to be the sharpest so that they wrong. can be as well. And yeah, it's really tough. Yeah. <clears throat> but uh, so just going back, uh, Auntie, to your question, really like tips that you can do. So first thing that we talked about is getting your core temperature down. And you can do that through a number of different ways, ingesting something that is cold rather than hot. Um, Don't do too much because you wake up in the middle of the night. Yes, this is true. Older men, you know what I'm talking Correct. about. Yep. <laughs> or just anybody with a bladder. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It was everybody. different when I was 18. Yeah. Uh, and he, then... If you can, uh, take a shower. It doesn't have to be crazy cold. Uh, you don't have to go Wim Hof or anything, but you can uh, take a shower to be able to drop your core temperature down just a little bit. Even that cooling effect from a shower that's slightly warm. I talked about cold help. towels on the skin before. I mean, there are a lot mm -hmm. of ways to, to bring your core temperature down. So then they're not restricted to or limited cool to what we've talked about. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. And then uh, once again, to, and so all of those things can help. Then just make sure that you're getting the sort of sleep that you need thereafter, which in this case, if you're getting eight hours, that's fantastic. Uh, Auntie and keep It is up. and it isn't. I mean, it, it's True. eight hours, but what's the quality of those eight hours? And that's, that's sure. something that's missed too often. Yeah. Good point. It's not just quality or not it's just not quality. Just it's quality. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Jerry's question it says great <clears throat> podcast. I listen every week. Chad keeps saying that strength training and endurance workouts on the trainer don't mix well. Well, he's probably, I picture people like doing shoulder press <laughs> yeah, yeah, while, while they're on the bike. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've seen that in spin classes, right? Uh, so it says, does it make any difference if a person does a strength workout targeting the upper body and then does an endurance workout on the trainer, which of course primarily works the legs. Does the signaling that occurs affect the whole body or only the specific muscle groups involved? This is like a, all, once again, a question I'm sure all of us have had. Mm -hmm. Is it like a systemic thing or is it localized? Yep. And I should preface this with the statement that I should preface every, every one of my answers with is I understand it. Sure. And I think I have a pretty good grasp on understanding this and I, I do my fair share of reading my due diligence. Um, so as I understand it, <laughs> yeah, there are conflicting signals. But the signals are cell specific. I mean, we talk about cell signaling all the time. It's right there in the name, cell signaling. We're talking specific cells. Um, in the case of muscles, we're talking muscle fibers. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a muscle cell, a myocyte. So the 10,000 foot view of cell signaling mm -hmm. is we all begin as zygotes, right? Sperm in the egg, we're a zygote. At that moment, we contain all the DNA 
necessary, all the DNA we're ever going to contain. Yep. Um, cell division takes place. Every one of those cells contains all the DNA. So we're a perfect replication of that initial cell. Every cell contains effectively or does contains the same genetic information. doesn't matter what type of cell it is, whether it's a liver cell, a skin cell, a hair cell, same DNA is in there, mm -hmm. but different cells use that information in different ways. Okay. So your genome is your DNA, whereas your epigenome is how you use your DNA. Mm -hmm. Okay. And again, 10,000 foot view, trying to be as simplistic as possible. Yep. Get a little more, uh, a little finer, go to a thousand foot view. Um, this is a, a question of what we are genetically versus who we are expressively. Mm -hmm. And expression is the key term there because that's how that that's the term used when we're describing how we switch on and off our genes. And to be more accurate, it's actually how we dim or brighten them. So it's not it's not a binary thing. It's degrees of. Mm -hmm. Typically, when we're talking about athletes, you'll hear gene expression talked to in terms of protein expression. For our terms, they're synonymous. Mm -hmm. um, there is obviously a distinction, but for us, it, it might as well call it. It might as well be the same thing. Um, Dr. Catherine Shanahan, uh, she wrote Deep Nutrition. She's uh, very, very uh, educated in in the the realm of nutrition. And she also has a really good grasp on the realm of genetics. She describes genes as uh, they're like tiny protein producing machines that create different products. And what's so interesting about that is that we can influence how our genes modify themselves, mm -hmm. what products they produce. <clears throat> so the information is always there. We have this uh, effectively unchanging DNA blueprint and it's not totally ironclad, but mm -hmm. for our purposes, again, never changes. Mm -hmm. um, how we express that information, however, can be quite flexible. Mm -hmm. So, and, and how we do this is via any and every way we interact with our environment from nutrients, you know, the food we eat to their timing, when we eat them, you know, relative to exercise, for instance, um, sleep, not, not just the duration, but also the quality of the sleep, you know, the phases and how long you spend in these phases, et cetera. Um, exercise in its many, many forms, pollutants in their many, many forms, elevation at which you live, elevation at which you train, um, temperature at which you live, temperature at which you train, temperature at which you spend a day at the beach. All these things can impact the way we express our genome. Uh -huh. So this makes our, our, our genotype, what our DNA says we can be into our phenotype, what uh -huh. we decide to be, uh -huh. how we influence it. And when these influences change, we change with them. Yep. And sure, you may have a, pre a genetic, or I should just say a, a predisposition, that's genetic, and typically it's described as such, a genetic predisposition, but gene or protein expression comes in response to training, and this is where epigenetics figures into all of this. It's epigenetics that says you're a time trialer, you're a climber, you're a sprinter, yep. because of the way you train, because of the way you talk to your genome, and, and then the, and the signals you choose to send, and the, the proteins you choose to ex you know, sure. express, whether or not you're conscious of that's what you're doing. Something interesting along these lines in like my 23 and me test, it said that I had like a, a, a predisposition, a genetic predisposition to be uh, considerably overweight, right? Yeah, predisposed to um, it, predisposed to yeah, it, but right? your lifestyle says otherwise. Your lifestyle tells your body, tells your genome. No, that's not, that's not Did how you just call it skinny. It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Chad. <laughs> oh, so that's like, a, 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 that's, 
<laughs> so that's like a, a boots on the ground example of that, right? In the sense that uh, you can have predisposition, but yeah. w- how you live also really affects things. Yeah, genetics loads the gun, the environment pulls the trigger. Cool. That's the that's the phrase. Perfect. Yep. I wish it were mine. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So and that's all for now. I was going to dive into mTOR and, and AMK, and, and that's that's a much bigger topic, and I would really like to distill it down to what's useful. Mm-hmm. I could go on it for a while and probably butcher some things, get a lot of things right, but probably <laughs> provide we provide you with too much detail. So I'm going to save that for later. Let's dig it. Let's tie it back into Jerry's question. Yeah. Yeah. So the takeaway is you can have both, but you can't have them in the same cell, at least not optimized. So if you decide to train the same muscle groups with endurance and also with strength training, you're never going to be the best strength athlete or the best endurance athlete. You're going to be, you know, some, somewhere in between, you know, potentially good versions of both, not great versions of either. So if you think of, for instance, telling your upper body that you want strength and doing strength work, telling your lower body that you want endurance and, and getting on the bike, you're, you're similar to every triathlete that you see running around carting excess upper body mass. Uh-huh. That's probably a lot of what they're doing. They're doing strength work upstairs, endurance work downstairs, and they've made it work. Not the best endurance athlete they could be, not the best strength athlete they can be, but probably pretty good and probably a pretty well-rounded human <laughs> They look individual. nice too. And they yeah, look good exactly. on top of it. Yeah. 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 So the body's not dedicated to a single aim. There's nothing wrong with that. Unless, mm-hmm. of course, you want to be a, a world tour rider or a, or a top level strength athlete. Mm-hmm. So it just depends on what you tell your bodies, how you choose to express your DNA. Yeah. So I guess uh, going within that, though, that doesn't mean, uh, I guess one way you could say that is like, well, then I should never strength train if I'm trying to be an endurance athlete. Definitely not. But there are benefits outside of that that you get with a, the the moderate amount of strength training that you would do mm-hmm. that wouldn't detract from the endurance side. Right? Absolutely. And there and there are ways to, you know, we, we've talked about how you position your strength training relative to your endurance training so that you maximize the signaling of one before you impede it with the signaling of the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's all about, yeah. Just separate them. Basically. Yeah. It's quite simple, quite yeah. simple. And you can, um, there's, there's data to support that you can do, um, low level endurance training, couple that with strength training and not ha- have that strong of a conflict between those two sets of signals. What about, uh, say I'm doing a trainer workout, then immediately afterwards I do bench press. Is that messing it up if I'm not doing anything with the legs? I don't know why it would. I can't imagine why it would. Yeah, because yeah. the mTOR and AMPK, which we talk about later, They're is separate. Different fibers, yeah. getting different messages, manifesting different proteins, different expression, transcription. But if yeah, I did, did uh, replication, separate uh, channels. If I did trainer workout and then I did heavy squats, that's where that that's a huge conflict. Yeah, exactly. You're telling, you're telling your muscles, I want one thing, and then immediately after, you're telling them, I want exactly the opposite. <laughs> Poor <Yeah>. muscles. You're <laughs> <laughs> so confusing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cool. Uh, Nate, uh, before we get into any other questions, one thing that we want to talk about here <clears throat> is something that we've just released last week. It's been awesome. Thanks for waiting for me. Yeah, yeah. The reception has been great on this so far, by the way, uh, you can go to the forum and check this out. You can also <clears throat> enable this. What I'm talking about is plan builder. Uh, so basically this is an automated training plan builder for you that takes you from wherever you're at to peak fitness. It's something we're super excited about, uh, people that have been using it. It's an early access now. And what we mean by early access is the fact that you can actually go into your train road account. And when you click on your account online, then there's an area where you can click early access and then you can enable features. And I would check that somewhat frequently because sometimes we enable things and you can turn them on. So it's <laughs> yeah. kind of cool. But, um, but you, that's, you, you're going to give people, uh, like, uh, We'll tell you usually. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We'll tell you. Usually. Yeah. It's yeah. not like we're going to be like a, like Sneaky. covert about this. Yeah. yeah. And sneak something by it. A couple hours check. It's a cool thing to, to be able to do and to get some early access into this. So 
if you go to the forum, there's a big long post on there where uh, we announced it and then we're going through and, and talking to a bunch of people and people are sharing their experiences with using it. And we coming from that, we wanted to uh, go through here and touch on a couple points that we found uh, like educational points that will really help everybody yes. as they go through this. So it's an early access and at the moment, um, early access to it's a fancy way of saying beta, like mm -hmm. we're testing it. So there are some bugs. And what we noticed, the thread has 570 <laughs> it's a posts lot. like this morning. It's going to be yeah. more after this. And um, a lot of them were questions about why are we building the plan a certain way? So we wanted to cover this here mm -hmm. so that Chad can just tell everybody. Yeah. And that's probably more people here than respond to everyone in the forum. Yeah, yeah. And one thing with this too, like uh, one of the one of the firm principles that we adhere to here is constant improvement. We believe in like constantly getting better. This is why mm -hmm. Chad's always researching. It's not like Chad's like, I've coached many athletes in good. the past and I'm good. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Chad's always researching. We're always improving in everything that we do. And like plan builder is a huge step for us and always improving how all of you can get faster. Uh, but plan builder itself will always improve and will always improve everything mm -hmm. that we do. I see this in, in, along the same lines as the ramp test. I mean, we recognized uh, a challenge. We came up with some really good ideas and how mm -hmm. to surmount that challenge. And we had a ton of data to help us shape that design. And yeah. we came out with a really good product and we've done it again. So what yeah. John is doing as a disclaimer is the stuff that we're going to tell you now, we reserve the right to improve it in the future. Exactly. It may yep. change, right? Well, hopefully, yeah. hopefully it gets better and better and better until it is the best. Right. Like, of course, like, I don't know. It's like you it's approach the limit, but never reach the limit. It's yeah, ninety nine point nine, ninety point nine, nine, nine. Exactly. So, anyways, uh, one th can yes. we start with the objective of the whole thing? Yes. So, like, what you do? The whole thing is is built around your events, right? Yep. You well, depends. Sure. So there's oh. different ways. One is you put in your races, and then it builds out the plans for you. And before the problem was, if you had exactly twenty eight weeks, it was easy base build specialty. Bam. But even there, kind of confusing. I'm doing a gravel race. What should I do? Um, mm -hmm. And that this product answers those questions for you. But what if you had twenty seven weeks? What if you had fifty one weeks? Mm -hmm. All these sort of things. Um, that is the objective. And also, if you don't have an event um, and you say, I want to be just generally fit, we will build that plan for you also. Sure. we get this question a few times in the podcast. <laughs> Maybe once. It's our number <laughs> one twice. question to support. Yes, it is. So it's very download common. Chad's brain, put it in, this in these things. And now Chad's going to explain his brain a little bit. Yeah. And, and it really is like it's uh, if you even if you don't have an event, you still kind of pick a discipline that you want to do. But let's just assume in this case that you do have an event. Yep. It's mm -hmm. really what it all builds toward, right? Like your yeah. A event, right, Chad? Okay. Yep. So the first question we've got a lot on is sometimes it will go base build, base build specialty. Yeah. Why is that? Um, so a couple of reasons, really. One one is to prevent stagnation. If, if we just made base what in this case, uh, eight, 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 and eight, sure. 12, 12, 12, and 12. Yeah. That gets boring. It gets boring really fast. It's also not enough stimulus to keep your body adapting. Mm -hmm. So stagnation was one thing we wanted to avoid. Um, it's also easier to maintain the escalation of your TSS. If you're doing base and build, because if you've noticed, as you probably have noticed, if you've ever done a specialty plan, TSS dips. Mm -hmm. So, so this wouldn't maintain that upward, um, fitness trajectory because now with specialty plan, we're, we're, we're shaping fitness for a specific event. But if you don't have a specific event right there, it doesn't make sense to specialize. There's nothing sure. to specialize for. You save that for later. You have to butt that closely up to your event. Sure. So we push you back into base build, but when you return to base build again, you're doing it with a higher level of fitness, a higher FTP. So it's another, it's just another step along the way, another, another step up the pyramid, or mm -hmm. now you're, you're, you're uh, working on a higher playing field. Yeah. And doing three builds in a row would it, destroy you. Same, really same with, it's the same thing. Stagnation and the stimulus is too similar, not to mention it's hard. So yeah. we go back to base, we take things, we dial things 
back down a bit, you're starting it again at a higher level, carry mm -hmm. that into your next build, which you start at a higher level than your previous build. Yeah. Then you specialize with, with, you know, two layers of fitness instead of one. Yeah. As, as long as your plan is, is, is solidly based on scientific principles and it's, and it's progressing you in a, in a proper direction as you're moving through this and you're getting fitter and you're going through it, you're improving and, and it's making you faster. And, but there's a bit of like, I think a lot of the disconnect exists for some people because, uh, in many cases, base build and specialty seems as if it is mandatorily sequential. Right. But in this case, what we're talking about is just trying to bring you, get you the most fit we possibly can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. That's the goal. Putting the, it's putting the blocks together when the time isn't 28 weeks. Yep. So what happens and I've done this and just about everyone does this. You look at it and you're like, okay, I'm going to do base. I'm going to do four builds. Actually, what I'll just do is do, <laughs> I'm going to do two by 20 and then VO2 max efforts. And then I'm going to do two five-hour rides <laughs> on the weekend. And then every week I'm going to up my FTP by two watts. And then by the time I get to my rent, I'm going to have a 4 watt FTP. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> sure. Right? If only. If only. <laughs> I mean, that's what these, because people are like, why would you put me back to base after I did build? I want to keep going. Mm -hmm. Like, give me more build. You are keeping uh, going. I Exactly. But in your mind, like you want to do this, sure. this really hard stuff. And the number one thing is consistency. Yes. And um, if we throw you against the wall, the worst thing, have you guys done this where four to eight weeks before your event, you do not want to train? Oh yeah. Like, oh, yeah. It's hard because I, then it's, it's like the worst spot to be in because you have time that you need to fill productively, but you're just, and you need to rest. Yes. Uh, it is, it is the worst mm -hmm. and, um, burning people out with too much stuff in a row. Mm -hmm. yep. That's why it doesn't go build, 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 oh, build, yeah. special, special, special. A, a build would, would burn you out. Yeah. So that is why this happens. So just trust us like this is better for you mm -hmm. um, or trust Chad. Mm -hmm. um, next question. This is the same lines. Um, if you have, we have time for like uh, four blocks, it might go base, build, base specialty. Mm -hmm. Some mm -hmm. people say, I just answered the question. Why don't you do two specialties in a row? Or why don't I do two Double builds in a row? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the same idea as we just talked about. Um, in this case, I like returning to sweet spot base because it targets the big hitters. The, the muscle endurance through the sweet spot work and then the VO2 max stuff is introduced in the second half of that. Mm -hmm. so, so it hits the things that are most fundamental to making you faster and to setting you up and putting you in the perfect spot for specialty. Mm -hmm. So even though it didn't get super specific with build, you already have that. It's already in there. So you've already raised, raised that playing field. So now you're going to go back to base build some more muscle endurance and, and a higher aerobic capacity and bring that into your specialty. Uh -huh. It doesn't always have to funnel perfectly in line. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Now there's another scenario where somebody has a ton of time. Like, let's say like they have like two 40 years. weeks, something like that, yeah. right? Yeah. Like two years. And in that case, uh, one of the questions that I've seen is a person saying like, I'm going through and doing base build and specialty, and then I'm going through and doing like a truncated version of that thereafter. Mm -hmm. Why am I doing the specialty phase in that case when you're talking about like a super long time? Yeah, because in, in that case, we, we put you through the whole 28 week cycle and that, that basically cultivates a base, mm -hmm. a, a, a really amazing base, a really well covered, you know, all, all aspects covered base. And then we do a truncated version of that is almost a touch up cycle. Mm -hmm. It's definitely not a taper, but everything you need is already there. Now we're just going to make each of those things a little bit better Yeah, with, and with a shorter version of the entire trajectory that you've already completed. It's all yeah. there. It's yeah. all in place. And if you move straight from the full BBS to the truncated BBS or the full cycle to the truncated cycle, you're, you're, you're 
there was never a lapse in your training. You're yes. simply on an upward trajectory. Yeah. And, and once again, remember you're getting fitter as this whole thing is happening. And the other side of this too, is that the specialty phase will allow you to pick up on a little bit of freshness because that's a long time to keep going. Right. And that's a large so, component of specialty phases Yep, is to, to, to prime you, to give you, you know, this is why part of the reason why the TSS dips, we need to freshen you up. We need to put you in a state where you're ready to compete, where you're, you're chomping at the bit. Yep. Can I tie it back to events really quick? Cause I know this is another question that we had, uh, David, one of our product managers is bringing up that this is kind of a common one. Um, it, so if, when you have an A event and you place it as your A event, that's, that's the objective plan builder is locked on to making you as fit as you can be for that. Event. That's the end point. Yeah. Right. Uh, so that's, and that's when you'll see that, you know, you'll have a taper built into that. It, it's, it has the whole strategy all around that. Now with your B, B and C events, a lot of the time, and this is kind of like a, we see this commonly a big question of just not quite, um, prioritizing your events can be hard. Mm -hmm. Part of it is, uh, can be a lack of knowledge, but a lot they're of it is self-control, right? They're all I just want to win them all. <laughs> and, and to some extent, that's to, true. They're try all to win them all, but they're yeah. not all A. You have yeah. to, you yeah. can't taper it, it's all year round. It's not, it's not important. It's priority. Yes. Which one is yeah. the highest priority? And you can try to win them all. Yeah. Sure. You can try to win a C event. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Right? right. So, and we, and I'll just give like a quick refresher on C and B, and then we'll talk about what plan builder does for those. So like uh, a C event is something that you can typically train through it's low consequence and it's like something you do train that, through. You yeah, do. Mm -hmm. yeah. Basically swap out a workout in lieu of it. Yep. And that's what plan builder does in this case with it. Right. Um, so, and a C event, like giving you an example of C events, those are like the weekly races I do. It may even be like a race series that's on the weekend. If it just doesn't have specific application or is far enough away in terms of timeline from my goal event, I'm not going to prioritize that event and and treat it as anything other than another workout. So no taper, speak. no days off. You just roll right through it. Yep. And that doesn't mean that it has to be a short race. It could be a gravel ride, right? But I, you know, I'm not planning on just, you know, going as crazy hard as I can, whatever else it may be. It does. It's not event duration dependent. It's once again, the priority in relation to your main goal. Now, a B event is something that you actually want to, whether it's you want to replicate some aspect of what you'll be doing on race day, whether it's a similar course, whether uh, it's close to enough to your event that you'll be use it, utilizing, you know, the, the current fitness you have will be similar to what you'll have on your event. Or it's just a race. One you that value you, more. Yes. That's you. Exactly. Could be a, so your A might be nationals, but you need to get like results or call-ups, or you just want to beat Chad in a race. <laughs> That's you what do B, That's A plus. For and then it adds a, it, 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 it uh, adds a little bit of rest before, and then you have a choice to add an opener or not. Yeah. So that's what plan builder does. Yep. So yeah, uh, which is nice. You can move that little switch. You can just click that and it'll add openers, which is really awesome beforehand. Um, like an example of a B event for me, I have even our state championships as a B event, uh, that we'll have, right. Yeah. Those are B events for me because my A event is national championships. That's my mm -hmm. pinnacle. And I try to be selective. I have the next day or we'll see two days after I'll have another national championship, but it's short track and it's not exactly my main goal. So I'm not putting that down as an A event. I'm putting that down lower. Like it's, I'm being disciplined in that regard and you can have multiple A events with plan builder. You just have to make sure they're spaced out adequately in order to allow yourself to the time and plan builder has those constraints built into it to make sure that you're doing that. Yeah, anytime you have several A events on a calendar, you probably need to get a little more, uh, differentiating yeah. for sure. Yeah. That's because, so that brings me a segue into my next thing. The events we do a taper for it. And I just saw this question too on the forum. Someone said, why are you having me do these intense workouts the week of my A event? Mm -hmm. But if you look at it, it was like, I think Huxley, but it was like minus five. Mm -hmm. It was 30 minutes and Short it was like version. 38 TSS. And you had been doing, this was I think on the low volume plan, 
300 TSS a week and you went down to like 120 or 130. Yeah. So um, the the thought, I mean, the whole idea behind this for the taper is you're still intense, especially for these like crits and rolling road race where it's going to be punchy, but mm -hmm. your volume is just much lower and you recover much better yeah. from it. It's a sharp reduction in the, in the volume. That's, that's what brings about the freshness, but we can't get away from that intensity. You still have to maintain that edge. You still have to be familiar with that, that sort of work. Those systems still need to be firing on all cylinders. You can't neglect them. Yep. hundred percent. One other thing I want to talk about is sure. too, with the base build, base build specialty and like ramping it back. I just saw somebody, they said, Okay, first year with Trina Road, got a hundred watt increase in my FTP noob games, but questioning our system because now he's tired. Okay, like <laughs> yeah, he or she. Yeah, sure, um, sure. Yeah, you're gonna be tired. Fatigue is uh, a thing. Like I see, like I did too many intervals. But um, yes, you're gonna be tired. Take that rest time. I would argue then uh, if you do it again, uh, like first of it. We got a tough crowd, man. Hundred watt FTP increase, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. that's I'm not pretty great. Sure, what more you expect? <laughs> they, they wanted to train to a different like training sure, system, sure. Um, but like do it again and be a little less tired during the year. Like try to do these these bouncing back and forth. Like just use Plan Builder pretty much, so that you can stay a little bit fresher. Maybe you'll be less tired at the end of the year. But yep. if you do the same amount of volume, but you'll still see some kind of FTP increase, but you'll be a lot less tired at the same amount of volume. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, ready to get into some live questions. Yeah. Let's Feels do like a short podcast. Yeah, Should we go two more hours? Yeah. 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 Would you get like 45 minutes? In there? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, this is, these are the live questions that you can submit when you join us on YouTube and we'd love to have you join us. Uh, we'll be here, uh, this next week on th Thursday at 8am Pacific for that. First one is from Cunio says, hi guys, what type of training plan do you recommend for, uh, obese people who want to get weight down before focusing on FTP? I'm doing, doing mainly zone two endurance work only to lose. And uh, it says from 142 kilograms to 125 kilograms. Um, this is like, a, a, a so there's like two kind of two parts to this. I see the, like, uh, what should I do before I start really training? That's like a, a training a, to train. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a, a big thing that a lot of people say, like, I don't want to just get into it yet. Just want to do something beforehand. Mm -hmm. And then the other side of it, what sort of work is best to lose weight? Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, so those are kind of like the two things that I pull out of that. <clears throat> yeah. And there, there, there's nothing wrong with doing some pre-work like, uh, with weight training, there's like an adaptive period where people will do some lighter stuff to brace them for the harder stuff to come. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a fine way to go, but it's not a necessity. Right. You don't have to train to train. You don't have to bring any more fitness than you already have. And that might be none mm -hmm. to the table. You can start from scratch. We assess your fitness, see where it is, and then go from there. And, and we start everybody out with sweet spot base. Yep. Uh, well, depending, but that's this typically where people start out yep. and that's a great place to start. The type of work that it has you doing right from the very start is something you can do. Maybe yep. you'll find that new, being new to indoor training, maybe the workouts are a little long, hour long workouts for riders who are new to indoor riding yep. can seem interminably long. Sure. That will only last for so long. Yep. Just, just do what you can in the moment and uh, understand that you will improve and you don't have to start with any pre-training. You can dive right in. Yeah. One thing that we've talked about just recently, a couple episodes ago, I think in 234 was the fact that kind of the myth of the fat burning zone, that if you stay in zone two, that's another thing. you yeah. know, that, that that's where you'll burn fat. And if you step outside of that, you don't burn fat. Nope. That's not true. But you, you can do a lot of the low intensity training and, mm -hmm. and burn fat the whole time. Sure. But you have to first off have the time. And, mm -hmm. and it's just one way of burning fat. And, and well, like I just said, it's very time consuming. Yep. So a ton of fat is being burned with interval training. A ton of oh, fat yeah. is being burned post interval training. So yes. it's, yes, uh, it's an effective way to go, but it requires a lot of time and it's only one of several ways to go. Yep. Uh, 
Cuneo, is that how you say it? So mm-hmm. this is, my advice would be to, it's like this, and this can be a little personal, find the balance where you can restrict your calories enough where you can maintain it mm-hmm. on the, like one side, that's the most important part. And then two, do as intense and as much volume as you can to be able to maintain that. Mm-hmm. And maybe that is Z2 workouts because you find like perhaps on this, on this uh, maybe I'm a thousand calorie or 500 calorie deficit a day. Mm-hmm. I can't do anything higher than that, mm-hmm. but maybe you can. So I would try it, For um, sure. but I wouldn't be working to f- fuel your workouts. Um, if you're in a beast state that you want to go, I would like, see, it sounds like you're getting up wrong with Z2. I wouldn't raise my calories in order to do more. Especially not. So that's one, of, that's one thing that Z2 work does not facilitate or does not accommodate. Mm-hmm. You can't, can't be pouring sugar into the system if, if the goal is to build aerobic endurance and also reduce body weight or body fat. Mm-hmm. So low intensity rides, that is one upside of them. You don't really need to nourish them. You can get away with quite a lot of work before that nourishment becomes crucial, but you do sweet spot work. You're probably going to need some, some nourishment if, if the rides are in Maybe the not though. Maybe I've, not. I've done I found that when I'm, the heavier I am, like the easier they are. Mm. Yeah. Until, and then when I get like skinnier, they're. They're tough. You have to feel 90 yeah. minute sweet spot workouts. I can get through those after an overnight fast. Pretty much no problem. Chad's Chad's Chad. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but a lot of people can do your mileage may vary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and Chad reads textbooks while he does that as well. Listen to classical <laughs> music. Time, Remember this. Time. Uh, Steve says, uh, when to work on sprinting, does it make sense to work on sprinting during the off season, not just technique, but building up power or should it be reserved for fine tuning during the race season? I can't think of any good reason to do it off season. If mm-hmm. you're just focused on sprint power. Cause that that's, that's power that can be trained up really rapidly and mm-hmm. it goes away really rapidly. So unless you're going to stay on top of it all the way to the pivotal races, mm-hmm. I would save it until, you know, six, four, eight weeks out, mm-hmm. four to eight weeks out. Depending. Technique though, different technique. You can work on any time. Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's, uh, no, you can, you can co- cultivate good sprint fitness two weeks out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, John says, uh, gear question when using a 29 inch hardtail mountain bike for a gravel grinder, any suggestions for gravel specific tires? The course is 40% road, 50% gravel and 10% trail. Uh, so this is actually kind of like the Franken bike that all of us have wanted to build for a while, right? Like having like a hardtail mountain bike, which Chad actually might be doing. I am doing. Um, so hardtail mountain bike, but then you have drop bars on it basically. And now that, uh, SRAM's Eagle axis work or exists, that makes it really easy to do it with like a wide range drivetrain, which is pretty handy too. So then you can have like a 1050 and then you can just have their road shifters. And since they all speak the same wireless language, now it works. It, it was complex before because of different indexing between mountain bike and road systems. A lot of the time, so you couldn't quite match up. And even though gravel setups are getting a little bit wider in terms of range in the back, uh, they're not quite to the mountain bike level yet. So, uh, anyways, that, that's the exciting thing. Um, tires though, Nate, you are known as the tire guy, uh, making lots of tire choices all the time. Yeah. I don't know if what's the best. Uh, That's why I keep changing. Of course. Exactly. (laughs) Constantly, constantly, uh, searching out the best options for my choice on this one. I would do the, uh, Victoria. Oh, this is, if it's a hard pack dry or loose over hard. Um, Mm -hmm. not if it's muddy or loam or something like that, but yeah, you're probably not doing that. Uh, it would be the Victoria Torino dry. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe we put a picture of that tread up. I put the, uh, Tucker, a, uh, a link in the, the podcast notes and in theirs they have uh they have 31 33 and 38 c mm-hmm. i would probably do 
depending on how bad the gravel and single track is, either 33 or 38. If it's if the gravel is just easy, I would probably do 33 for the road. And then, uh, thank you, there they are. And then if it's like I've done, what, what did I do? I did some huge gravel thing that on a 38C, uh, Segundo, I think. Yes, yeah, And it was amazing. Yep. Uh, it, it rolls really well on the pavement. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually would use these for cross too, uh, yeah. the 31s or the 33s, depending on if it's grass or loose or something like that. I'd use something, so depending on like uh, your kind of abilities and the abilities of, since you have a hardtail mountain bike, the geometry should be a little bit better. Um, but the more capable the bike, uh, if you have tires that are un- that are less capable, that will become more pronounced, so to speak, in some regards, because you may be expecting something different and you're kind of undergunning it, so to speak. So it really depends on your abilities. Um, one tire that <clears throat> if you are worried about traction on the gravel stuff and the trail stuff and worried about stability and everything, the WTB Riddler, we've used that mm. one. Uh, it's pretty darn good, um, but you will sacrifice some on the paved sections for sure. But it's got like micro knobs down the center. They're really small. Um, another one that you could use is, uh, and these are just from WTB, uh, ones that I've used, the WTB Byway. That one would be if you're more worried about the roadside and being efficient, um, which, uh, sorry, Tucker, not dropping in. The he's, going, right he's going in fast. <laughs> he's finding it. <laughs> Um, so I think that the one that he's pulling up right now is the byway and you can see that it's kind of like a semi slick in the sense that on top, it has like a full slick pattern across the top textured, uh, textured quarter zones, so to speak, or third zones. And then like on the shoulder knobs, it actually has some knobs. They aren't going to be the sort of knobs that really save you from falling, but they'll help for sure. And then another one that's kind of like an in-between the Riddler, um, or sorry, one that might be a little bit more meaty than the Riddler is the WTB Venture. Um, the Ventures like has a bit more grip to it for sure, but it has a pretty smooth rolling patch across the top. So tires, man, it's like, uh, it's, it's fascinating. And after, and if you're ever at like a race and there is a tire company there, if you're a nerd, like the rest of us are, I recommend talking to them about like what makes certain tread patterns work because you can really like start to understand certain things and see different characteristics. Like looking at the WTB venture, it has knobs that are on the sides, but then they're gapped out pretty substantially. And then they have these intermediate knobs that are smaller in between there. So that makes me know, I know that that tire looking at, not know, but I assume that that tire beforehand looking at it, it's not going to have outstanding lock in when you lean over on the side, but it's going to be really predictable because it has that transition instead of just like a harsh, the WTB, WTB Riddler on the other hand has like slicks and then big, big knobs. Transition. So they'll feel like they lock in really well, but it won't be as predictable in the transition over to leaning over. I'm already confused. What's the one with the, <laughs> the thing in the middle, the, the road? The, the, so there's the, yeah, byway. let me, let me put byway. Okay. So here's my thought to put these together. Yep. Byway best for a road. Yep. Like I'm gonna go road to loosest. Sure. And I would probably do the, uh, Vittorio Torino dry. Sure. Then I would do the Riddler. Uh-huh. In my experience, the Riddler's better like for loose stuff than the Torino dry, but the Torino dry is better on road. Yep. And then I would do the venture. Yep. That's yeah. kind of the step depending on how your course is. Sure. Yep. If you're doing something with 40% road, I really like, um, it's a it's, lot of road. It's a lot of road. That's like the Segondo had a lot of road in mm-hmm. it when we did it there. So that was, yeah. So you don't want to shoot yourself. It's in the a 10% trail that gets you. I know. Right. They always throw it in. That could be 
And that really, kind of makes we, it fun, though. Makes it like a, a for <laughs> you. Nate doesn't like it. But well, I mean, I like the fact that it makes people pick like kind of like compromising yeah. equipment choices. Why is so, that fun? It's, it's like, oh, my stuff's gonna suck at everything, <laughs> and then people are like, that's so much fun. Like, why not just do it all gravel and then it's fun? I, it's I can see the gravel a, road, but adding that trail, especially if it's technical and like it's gonna scare you. Sure, like you're just sliding down this this thing. Uh, it's just annoying. a fun thing to be able to like you know like sit back and make the equipment choices. I don't know. It's yeah, fun. but. I like that. From the okay, um, from the people who I've heard say this, <laughs> yeah. they have incredible technical skills, mm. right? So they could probably go down on a road bike on slicks and like, wow, that was fun. Yeah. But all of us who gets like, or sometimes it gets so technical that it gets like fear inspires us. Sure. Like then we're like, oh, we could do a mountain bike with two point three inch tires, but then the road's <laughs> gonna suck. But then I'll have fun on the ten percent trail. Yeah. Uh, right. Like, have you ever heard anyone who is? questionable like not at your level like the person i'm yeah, thinking of that i heard I this from is at your level yeah i haven't no. yeah i like it <laughs> i'm sure you do the, the road gravel part that's that's cool sure like yeah, that's yeah. that's uh in belgian waffle that's a good trade-off yeah but it's when you do the single track i i, I know i'm in the minority here yeah so it's like yeah. and we're gonna go down north star vietnam at the same time <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> well, sounds like fun all right, uh, last question, and then we'll we'll end it for this week. This is one that I think uh, so. Uh, Jacek, you may have been you you may be in the watching this every week because I think I see this question come up every week. Uh, so I apologize if we haven't addressed it yet. But um, quick question: Does pelvic tilt affect cycling efficiency? And this one's kind of hard to just provide like a quick answer to. Um, but we've talked about this uh, many times in I mean, terms of pelvic movement tilt. Movement economy? Yeah. Well, well, yeah. Cycling efficiency are the words that, that I are used right here. Like, are you, if you're like at this angle versus this angle? Exactly. Right. Like if it's going to tilted forward efficiency? or tilted backward. Yeah. I think probably talking about movement economy. I mean, mm -hmm. just how well you <clears throat> pedal, the, the form with which you pedal. Sure. Not, we're not talking about energy. I mean, Substrate, cycling efficiency output. is the words are the words that are used. So it's, it's yeah, up to you, only, Chad. I can only guess. Um, just to say that uh, pelvic tilt is a bit subjective. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had my days where I thought everyone should have their sit bones firmly anchored to the saddle in all situations, but I've since learned that a lot of people don't have low backs that will accommodate that. Um, mm -hmm. If the change in their body position, whether they get into the drops or they're on the tops or they're, you know, different types of bikes will influence how much they can uh, get away with. Mm -hmm. So... I honestly don't know if it, if it changes efficiency. I mean, if it forces you to ride in a way that doesn't really serve you and, and is wasteful in any way, then yeah, it's absolutely going to have an effect. But I don't think there's one particular pelvic tilt that is going to work across the board and make everyone the most uh, economical yeah. rider possible. This is like the, the nebulous world of like, uh, a lot of the, the thing that kind of shakes confidence in a lot of bike fit, uh, deals, you know, when people go in, I know Nate, like, uh, I think maybe it was you where you, you've gotten bike fits and they've kind of like. They kind of don't do a whole lot in terms of change. You've paid a lot for bike fits, right? Like going oh, yeah. to different ones. I've, I've been one where they just put a shim in one of my saddles and that's all they touched. Yeah. Uh, in one of your shoes, you're saying? Yeah. 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 Uh, I think that's just because they wanted to do something. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> a, like a half of a millimeter <laughs> yeah. shim. They're like, there you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. $250. To the other point where they put me in a position where I'm like, I can't hold this like more than 15 seconds. They're like, you'll get used to it. Yeah. Don't worry about yeah. it. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So it's, there's a lot of like, and I've, I've heard a lot of really hard and fast statements made about pelvic tilt with bike fitters where they say like, mm -mm. if you're not at this Just angle, no. it's wrong. If you're and and the thing is, it is different for, for every person. The one thing I can say is that, um, if you do have something that's like extreme on one side or the other, like, you know, you're always folded really far forward. Your pelvis is rolled forward or you can't maintain a forward position if you have to, well, mm -hmm. something like that. And there's all sorts of trades that have to be made to change pelvic position to yep. accommodate pelvic pelvic.
dynamic changes. Yeah. Usually it's fair to say, this is like, and this is only my observation, but it's fair to say that an extreme for like bike fit, if you're talking about like a hard and fast rule that pushes you far against the wall on one side of the extremes, in most cases is not going to be the best approach, but who knows? You may be like an outlier and it may be what you need. But in most cases, I find that bike fits tend to be pretty similar, or I should say the human body rests in a pretty similar position with individual variants all throughout. So it's tough. Um, I wish that there was an answer to be able to say like, this is the ideal bike fit. And when you do this, it unlocks 15% more power. It'd be great. Uh, cause we'd all have it, but unfortunately no, nah, it's just not quite that way. Anything else to add, Nate? I'm just thinking like, if the question was around, like, will my mechanical efficiency change based on my yeah, pelvic that's why, tilt? That's why I wanted to do Yeah. It. And I don't know I of any studies just... that have shown that like, no. um, mm -hmm. And I bet you whatever there might be cadence. There, there are cadence-based ones, but not pelvic mm -hmm. placements. I, I, what I would think is whatever you're in and you change, you might be less efficient at first, but you probably adapt to it. Yes. Um, so <laughs> that uh, I would, I would question a study with that too, unless someone did it for a very long time. Yeah, because everybody will be less efficient at first because they're yeah, exactly. changing position that way. Yeah. 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 Uh, which is why it's really tough. Like whenever, like, man, if I was a, if I was a, a snake oily bike fitter, it'd be really easy, right? Like, you know, uh, to kind of work those, those avenues, but, uh, just the same, hopefully that, that helps a bit. Uh, don't, don't worry too much about it. Instead, focus on hitting your marks with your training. That's probably where you're going to get a bigger bang for your buck. So yeah, if you're comfortable on your saddle, you probably don't need to change much. Sure. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Remember you can join us next week. That's going to be Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific, and we will be answering more of the cycling and triathlon related questions. Head over to trainerroadcom slash reviews and leave a review. If you use trainer road and love it, check out plan builder. You're going to love it. Nate, you've got something to add. We're going to interrupt. Greg, uh, do a more. I can't remember. Do he just asked Chad, what will you have for your last meal? Does he know something that I don't know? <laughs> my <laughs> last meal. Yeah. Oh, so like if you were, I, I've heard this question, like if you were going to have your last meal, what would it be? Oh, that's what he's talking yeah, about. Yeah. So let's say if someone found the bodies and you got, uh, <laughs> you're on death row. They'll never find them. <laughs> They'll never find them. <laughs> I'm very thorough. Uh, if you're, sorry for interrupting, but sure. I just saw who it was from yeah, and yeah, it was yeah. a, uh, Greg, Greg is a friend of the podcast. Thanks Greg for all that you do to, to help out. <laughs> I, I can't quickly answer that. I'd have to give it some thought. You I, don't I, know? Would, I would need my several months on death row to really. Does it involve that. Popeye's? Yeah, most certainly. Because by then you don't care, right? Chad's like yeah. it's bad for your I health. Don't care if it tastes good though. And I've uh, never. Yeah. Ooh, you got to try that new Popeyes chicken sandwich. Which I did. I do. I have to. It's it's I, it's it's good. It's not a have to actually. It's, it's not a not need. A yeah, yeah, not a need. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us, and we will talk to you next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye bye.